0: My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber, I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer, and you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity and the human condition. Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I
1: I had an unexpected poo just before we started recording this, so we're a little bit uh,
0: behind schedule, but that's absolutely fine. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Um, I got up, I was up till four o'clock in the morning last night reading Andre Agassi's autobiography. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really, really, really good. It's so it's incredible. It's so well written. Um, It was it it was ghostwritten by some Pulitzer Prize winning author guy uh, that talks about in the acknowledgements, but it was just absolutely riveting. I've been staying up way past my bedtime reading it for the last few nights. Um, But here we are recording the podcast. And today is particularly exciting because we are joined by Joey Savoy. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Great to be here. Um, So before we launch into, um, well, the stuff we're going to talk about in this podcast, we have a, a message from our sponsor. Tamo, do, do you want to take it away? Sure. This week's episode is sponsored by none other than Skillshare.
1: Uh, Skillshare is the best way to teach yourself anything online. They've got thousands of classes uh, from productivity and making videos and music and, and, and all sorts of things. You have a bunch of
0: classes on Skillshare, don't you? I have a bunch of classes on Skillshare, yeah. So <clears throat> I think I've got eight classes on Skillshare at the moment. Two of them are themed around productivity. Two of them are themed around how to be you know study effectively if you're a student. There's one that's actually about how to be happier using lessons from stoicism. And then there's one that I don't talk about because it's quite embarrassing uh, about how to cook Um, which is probably one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. Uh, (laughs) And actually just last night, I filmed another Skillshare class around productivity for creators. So that will be going up on the platform sometime this week, hopefully. So if you guys would like to check out hundreds of hours of my content along with thousands of other classes where you can teach yourself absolutely anything so if that sounds up your street then head over to skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking pod and that will give you a free trial of the premium membership after your trial expires then the annual membership is less than ten dollars a month at skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking pod or hit the link in the video description oh man i'm sweating even doing that Tamo, how was how was that <laughs> that was great yeah gotta 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 put food on the table exactly (laughs) um speaking of putting food on the table joey (laughs) um so i wonder if we could start like okay should we can you give us like a a sort of short bio of like what what do you do for the people who might not have ever come across you before please
2: yeah, yeah, sure. So I run Charity Entrepreneurship, basically a nonprofit that helps other nonprofits uh, start off more impactfully and, and be particularly kind of great NGOs uh, in various spaces. So it's almost like a, an education program or a training program incubator, maybe a Y-combinator of NGOs, uh, but very much focused on kind of the ones that do the most impact. So stuff that might be recommended by charity evaluators like GiveWell or, or that sort of thing. That's what we're going for.
0: Awesome. That's very cool. And... Uh... <clears throat> I wonder if we could start by talking about your salary. So you famously decide your salary based on a spreadsheet. Like how,
2: how does, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. So I, I take a pretty analytical approach. I guess in some ways I'm lucky where, uh, salary has never been like a really big focus of mine or a really big priority or, or this sort of thing. So, uh, we do something a, a bit different, uh, both me and my co-founder, we take salaries based on the kind of uh, world uh, uh, average GDP uh, so kind of uh, per person uh, so this is uh, pretty low by kind of like london standards you know it's it's under under minimum wage typically a lot of the time uh, and that sort of thing uh, but i I think it's very interesting so I find uh, taking the Los alley actually like quite freeing um, so when you think about kind of the differential between the amount of money you need to spend to kind of be happy and then your skill and your, like, maybe potential earning potential, uh, I think the bigger that gap is, the, the more general freedom uh, you end up having. So, yeah, it's pretty low, but I, I definitely don't feel... Uh, uh, poor or, or impoverished or this sort of thing and i think it's very different than if you're in a dire financial situation versus say by choice uh taking a really low salary so so effectively that i can donate more or uh, run our organization at a, at a lower cost that that's why i'm doing it it's it's for the kind of ethical reasons although i've always been a little bit on the minimalist and frugality side so that probably makes it a little bit easier
1: okay
0: so uh, what, uh, what what's that number these days and what are the kind of ethical ethical reasons for for, for doing this
2: yeah so it's it's about it's about sixteen thousand five hundred usd that sort of ballpark it, it moves around a little bit year to year and a little bit based on kind of what measures you're, you're uh kind of looking at and taking into account um but yeah it's 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 lean um i think that it's possible uh for uh certain people who have like like quite a quite a familiarity with finances and, and how to spend and, and this sort of thing. Uh and also I'm a bit lucky, you know, I have no student debt, I have no kind of like uh recurring costs of, of children or these these sort of things. I don't think it would be possible for, for a lot of people, but given my circumstance, you know, I live with a partner, uh that sort of thing, uh, it, it ends up being uh quite 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 achievable. I think if it's like someone looked around at my quality of life, they they wouldn't be like, oh wow, you're clearly living like you know, below <laughs> London minimum wage or, or below UK minimum wage, uh, or that yeah. sort of thing.
1: Well, so you never you never run into a situation where I don't know your your friends want to go on holiday somewhere and you're like, ah, oh, sorry, man, <laughs> like this <laughs> this will break the bank. Does that not happen?
2: Yeah, n- not not very often. So I can say that uh, my friends are like often, uh, much, much higher income uh, than I am. So sometimes they'll, they'll be like, Hey, I want to go here. And I'll be like, yeah, I, that's not really in my budget. And they'll be like, Oh, I'll pay for your ticket. So sometimes I do get to go to cool things uh, on other people's okay. dimes. So th- that works in terms of trips and that sort of thing. I, I mean, I probably travel more than I would like to uh, just for work. Um, there's just a, a lot of kind of <laughs> travel that, that needs to be done to, to change the world. So that's never been a, uh, a challenging endeavor, but yeah, I, I think, I think a lot of it, I mean, It comes down, uh, when you kind of like look at the super low levels of salary, it comes down to minimizing your reoccurring big costs, right? So how are you going to deal with rent? How are you going to deal with food? How are you going to deal with transportation? And I think I've got those uh, all quite low. You know, a lot of the time it's like upfront investment in whatever uh, a particular thing that's that's beneficial or upfront making a really big spreadsheet about what's the cheapest grocery store to use and then uh, kind of refollowing those habits ongoingly. Um, on the grocery front,
0: what are your go-to meals? Because I am <laughs> like, this has been something I've been struggling with for the last several years, where I feel like this, there's, I there's, there, there is too much choice when I go into a supermarket or when I'm on Amazon Fresh, and I get paralyzed by choice. And I think I need to do, I I, I need to just have a a spreadsheet or a causal, a causal model of <laughs> what food I'm going to be eating every day of the week, and then just have that on autopilot, so I don't have to think about it. Uh, yeah. do, you, I, do you do anything like that?
2: Uh, I I do. Yeah. I think that's a a really great idea. So interesting thing. You have to think about like what parameters you're trying to maximize for. Right. So what do you want out of food? Do you want it to be easy um, to to cook really quick? Do you want it to be cheap? Do you want it to be healthy? Do you want it to be kind of tasty on a more subjective scale? And all of these are are like somewhat sliders that, that trade off against each other. Like sometimes you find like a superfood, like for me, uh, peanut butter on bananas, that's just, like, awesome. It's super cheap, it's super easy, it's super healthy, it tastes quite good. Um, you know, that that's kind of, like, a, a win across a lot of categories. But typically, you're making some sort of trade-offs between these categories. And one trade-off I make is a variety. I, I don't eat, like, a ton of variety. I, I kind of have, like, a pretty uh regimented similar sort of diet day to day but i find it again it's it's kind of like freeing like i it's not okay. i i don't really love food it's not a thing i think about a lot it, it's something i'd prefer to just like if i could plug into an iv drop when i go to sleep and then just like wake up and feel fully refreshed that'd be great i would like sign up <laughs> for that uh in a heartbeat
0: okay so what are your go-to what are your go-to recipes or like how how how, how does it work do you have like a recurring weekly grocery order or what's what what's the setup like
2: yeah, exactly. So, uh, grocery delivery—I'm uh, a big fan of. I don't know if you guys use grocery delivery, but everyone should. I guess everyone does uh, now. But everyone should have been doing this for for years. It's such a time saver, and even if you're living on a really low salary, I think it's uh, kind of worthwhile. So. Grocery delivery once a week, uh, reoccurring order, uh, set up some pretty similar staples. So I typically have like an oatmeal type breakfast, a fruit for breakfast, and then, uh, I only eat two meals a day. So maybe that makes it easier too, a little bit less logistics, um, some whole wheat crackers, something like that. And then round off with some sort of vegan alternative meat, uh, and, uh, and whole wheat buns and, and this sort of stuff. But a lot of it, so it's interesting. Cause like, I don't think my diet, like if you were taking pictures of it would look that healthy, but every step has been, uh, like kind of optimized, so it's like, okay, uh, what burger buns are you going to buy? Uh, you know, whole wheat versus not is a huge difference. Uh, what ketchup are you going to buy? You know, there's 50% sodium reduced ketchup, 50% sugar reduced ketchup. There's actually a hundred percent reduced, but that kind of tastes gross. So it's it's, 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 sometimes you have to make compromises there, but, uh, because I'm only eating, yeah, basically the same seven things every, every day or every week, uh, you can really, really get it down to a science. So buy you know, 40 different brands of crackers and try out each one and look at the health stats for each one and determine like, okay, I'm pretty sure that in the UK, this is my favorite cracker. Um, and just do that for everything. Again, kind of like upfront time investment for this like long-term reoccurring of, okay, now I'm kind of like, this is like a solved problem.
1: Have you always been into optimizing every part of your life? When did this start?
2: Yeah, I, it's gotten it's gotten worse or better, um, depending <laughs> depending on how you frame it. It's It's gotten more intense over time. I think I've always been uh, very consequential. So I've always cared about uh, the end line outcomes uh, a lot more than the specific path to get there, kind of being like stubborn to the ends, flexible in the means. And I think even when I think back to, like, earliest memories, I seem to be much more consequential than, than other people intuitively, and my parents are both, like, pretty consequential. So probably some aspect there. But I think part of it was just I wanted to do too much stuff, and you can fit more into your life, and you can do more if you optimize stuff. So uh, as people know, an empty an empty schedule, uh, you know, versus, like, a, a packed uh, kind of schedule uh, you just get a lot more done if you kind of structure it and organize it. So I think it was like somewhat out of necessity that you and I ended up kind of optimizing on these dimensions. And once you optimize once, and it works so well, you're like, huh, I wonder if I could do this again. Uh, and maybe I'm more keen to creatively cross apply to, to a whole bunch of different domains uh, than the average person.
0: Huh? Uh, have you have you have you have you read the book of the Rosie Project by any chance? I don't think so. Oh, so I read this uh, a few a few weeks ago. Apparently, it's one of Bill Gates's favorite books, and it's about this genetics professor who's got Asperger syndrome, who is trying to find a wife. And I could really relate to a lot of aspects of it. But he he does he he does this sort of thing where he's sort of systemizing and optimizing every aspect of his life and his schedule, and. It's done, it's, it's done in such a, like, it makes so much sense. Uh, like, you know, every Tuesday, he's going to have this exact same meal. He's going to go down to the market. He's got the preparation of the meal down, like, so quick. And he, you know, finds it, it's very relaxing to cook the lobsters in a certain way. And it's like a really super fancy meal. But it's just so kind of tuned to the letter. And I was, I was, as I was listening to it, I was like, okay, this, this actually sounds like a pretty solid setup um, to not have to worry about what you're eating every day.
2: I, like- I think people naturally trend towards this uh, eventually, right? Like, if you look at uh, young people in general, they tend to be more in the explore mode, right? Trying to trying to figure out a bunch of different things, trying to test out a, diff- a bunch of different things. But then as people get older, they move more into, like, exploit mode, uh, basically trying to take advantage of the things they've already learned. So young person will go to 10 different restaurants. The old person might go to the same restaurant every Sunday. But if you can just do that quicker, um, like if you can test more upfront and then uh, put kind of your efforts to, to maximizing it. Yeah, so on...
0: On this note, like one, uh, one sort of genre of comment that I that I, I often get well, on often, but occasionally get on YouTube, Instagram and things is the, the thing of, Hey, you know, you're optimizing every aspect of your, of your life. This is toxic productivity. You should be able to relax and take a break as well. Like you're promoting bad things for mental <clears> health. <throat> um, and I feel like there are a lot of like straw man-y type assumptions baked into that, but I wonder, like, do you, ever, do you ever get that sort of sentiment from, from people that you speak to about this?
2: Yeah, well, the, 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 I, definitely, I definitely get it. I mean, the boring meta answer is you can structure that in too, right? So if you think you need X amount of uh, free time that's totally unstructured, cool, put that in your Google Calendar. <laughs> I now, that, that's a very yeah. optimizer answer to, to an unoptimized question. But yeah, I, I don't think the evidence really bears this out. So I think people have this idea that like, oh yeah, if you're you're unplanned and kind of unstructured, you, you feel more free and you feel less stressed and this sort of thing. And then you actually like, look at data that that has been taken on this. And it turns out that people who plan stuff, people who, who make kind of more conscientious choices or, or have a less kind of lazy attitude actually end up maximizing their goals better, which includes personal happiness. Uh, so I don't know uh it depends what your goals are maybe if you have like there's like an intrinsic value that like you want x amount of, of free time or, or that sort of thing uh then fine but i think i think people have maybe a, a romanticized notion of how good that actually works out in practice yeah why is it
1: consi- why wh- where does this narrative come from why is it considered weird to be systematic about sort of most of the parts of your life I, it, well, it's weird I, because I, I, it's, it's not it's, everywhere okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so like other cultures in which that's actually sort of seen as a good thing. You know, it's like, it's cool to have the Google spreadsheets.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's cool. Cool might be an, <laughs> an, ext- an extension across lots of cultures. Maybe very narrow cultures like My Office or something like that. If you <laughs> find it cool, to do two spreadsheets. But the, the weird thing for me is people are totally fine with being quantified when it comes to like buying a car. Or buying a house, like 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 a consumer large consumer products, people are like, cool. Let's let's do this analytically. But when it's like, oh, I want to pick a job, uh, it's like, whoa, you can't be analytical about that. Or I, I want to, you know, d- even determine what city to live in. Oh, ah, that's crazy to make a spreadsheet on that. Um, so it's it's weird. It's it's a very unequal application of rigor across uh, different areas, and I'm not sure why that is. It's
1: interesting you mentioned the job and the um, the city thing because I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just hang out with a certain crowd of people, but. Uh, I think yeah, optimizing job and city would definitely be be seen as like a good thing and, and like a, a smart thing to do. I think that the realm where the sort of opt- optimization approach doesn't really sit well to people uh, with people is kind of in in the sort of social realm of like uh, making friends, relationships, stuff like that. You know, people really don't like the idea of having having a method to, to that side of your life.
2: Yeah, it's it's probably to do with some sort of uncomfortability with quantification of certain values uh, in general, right? So it's kind of like okay to say like this house is better than this house uh, on some sort of objective criteria. It's like less okay to say like this person is better than this person. Uh, but again, when you're if you were to be analytical about uh, social relations and this sort of thing, it, it wouldn't be uh, necessarily saying X is objectively better than Y. It could be about a fit thing, right? So. If you know that X character trait, like, for instance, for me, when it comes to friends, partners, this sort of thing, like shared values is like really important. Surprise, because I really care about ethics. Um, so knowing that about yourself is useful. It, it kind of like sets the stage for, for like a character trait that, that you care about and, and that sort of thing. I think people are quite uncomfortable with introspection. Maybe maybe it's a bit uncomfortable to like realize the reality of what things you care about. So if someone's, you know, thinking about like, oh, yeah, here's the three things I wish I would care about. And then here's the three things I actually care about. Uh, maybe they're kind of like unflattering uh, outcomes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there's also a bit of like romanticism around friendships and relationships and things like that, where it's meant to be this sort of almost like mystical thing that happens to you. Than, no, yeah. 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 That kind of stuff. Um, I mean, do, do you do you take the spreadsheet approach in your social life?
2: Yeah, um, definitely. What's that look like? <laughs> I, so uh, I, I've used it in a bunch of contexts um, often when. So one thing a story I have about like success of, of online dating um, I did online dating as many analytical people do, went on OKCupid as many analytical people do. It's kind of the, the analytical website. Spent a ton of time uh, making spreadsheet for characteristics, looking through an outrageous number of profiles. I sent one message. It was like four pages long. Um, got a response from that person. Was in a relationship with that person for ten years. Um, so like that's some sort of like success story for for OKCupid that they should use in their their marketing materials. But I, I don't actually think it was the website so much as the analytical approach. Uh, know what you want. And at that point in my life, I had dated uh, you know quite a few people, so I had a better sense of what sort of character traits were compatible and th- this sort of thing. Um, for friends, uh, I think. A a big part of it is you actually want to think about how these people are going to affect you, right? So there's the, the the common adage that you are some of your five closest peers. If you think about that, you really want to think about, okay, like, who do I want to be a sum of? Like, do I want to be one-fifth this person? And it becomes a much more, like, personal specific choice of, like, do I like the way this person affects me? Do I like the, the kind of trends that this person's going to lead down? And I think, uh, yeah, leaving it to chance or, or convenience or, or this sort of thing... Uh, it feels feels like leaving quite a bit of your your life and your personality and your happiness uh, on the table without without thinking about it that hard. And maybe, I think people do probably do get better over time at optimizing, kind of accidentally, like they get experience of oh yeah, I don't want a friend like this and and that sort of thing. But uh, it's it's very slow, you know. It's very slow if you you kind of do the the blind uh, feel approach.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because you often hear people as they as they grow older, they say, you know, one thing I've realized is that I can I, I can and should cut toxic people out of my life and, and things like that. It's a very, like, op- optimizing friendships is what they're getting at here. It's just a, a non-spreadsheety way of doing it to say that, oh, you know, this is a realization that I've had that that person is toxic and therefore I don't want to hang around, hang out with them.
2: Yeah, I think the, the benefits of age in some ways is just like acquiring better heuristics, uh, so better mental shortcuts that... Are going to lead you to better outcomes. Uh, but if you don't specify those and don't think about those, it's really hard to pass them on. It's it's really hard to kind of uh, know what, what's going on. So I think people's processes like do get better, but in kind of like this soft, squishy way, they don't really know that like, oh, yes, I have determined that uh, people tend to influence like, uh, people tend to affect my affect, so I want to be around like happy, optimistic people because then I tend to be more happy and optimistic. Um, thus, if someone's really negative all the time, I should probably not spend a lot of time with that person, especially when I'm in down states. Like people have that, but it's it's not explicit, it's not spelled out. It's, it's more like this feeling of ooh, uh, I'm not not as interested in that sort of connection anymore.
0: Yeah. Um. So I'm 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 very intrigued by by your approach to the dating thing because so. The story in in this book, The Rosie Project, is this guy who wants to find a wife ends up creating a questionnaire and he makes a questionnaire with like 100 different items and sort of he figures out like these are all the things that I want. These are all the traits I'm looking for in a partner and therefore, you know, I give this questionnaire to people and it's, uh, you know, spoiler spoiler alert, but the person he ends up falling in love with is someone who would not have made the cut on the spreadsheet. And so part of the moral, (laughs) if there is one, of the book is that You know, there are some things in life that really shouldn't be quantified. But I think, obviously, the, you know, spreadsheetization taken to the extreme is probably, you know...
2: I mean, the moral could be you suck at spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think think that's the right right takeaway.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think when people approach this, it's... They sort of view the spreadsheet approach always as like the most naive spreadsheet approach, where you can't, where you don't account for like nuance and less tangible stuff. Sure, you and can I think never update
2: when, it; you have to set it and leave it forever.
1: Yeah, and I think even when you even when you hit, you know, a lot of the criticisms about like effective altruism and things like that, which is like you know the spreadsheet approach applied to, uh, to, to sort of do a good in the world. The criticisms always assume like the most naive thing of like oh, well, you know, if you're taking the spreadsheet approach, there's no way, you know, you, you must completely ignore anything that isn't quantifiable. And so that's why you're wrong, you know, but <laughs> well, you can bake that into the spreadsheet, man.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do think people, yeah, there's, there's this book, How to Measure Anything that I, that I really like. And it, it talks about this huge range of issues that people are like, but you can't measure this. And then he just basically talks through, here's how you measure it. And <laughs> Everything in the world has some sort of output. So even if there's something like quite squishy, like, I don't know, having a good work culture, like what does a good work culture look like compared to a bad work culture? There are external signs, like maybe a sign of a good work culture would be lower turnover. Is that the only sign? No, you probably want to look at like a collection of metrics, but there is an indicator in the real world. Otherwise, you wouldn't even notice it. Uh, When you're using these soft things, you're kind of gesturing towards this like fuzzy cluster of things. Uh, And many of those things can be pulled out and measured as proxies. And there you go. Mm. It's,
0: so I've I've been running into this exact problem this week, because uh, last week I, m- I made a video called uh, something like uh, why I quit medicine and why I'm going back. And at some point, like sort of 25 minutes into this 35 minute long video, I said uh, I I was uh, I addressed the question of um, do you not feel guilty that you're not working as a doctor in the middle of a pandemic? And I said, OK, let's think about this. Um, I have a generally kind of utilitarian approach to this sort of stuff where I'm thinking, OK, what's my marginal impact as a. A doctor as a junior doctor two years fresh out of med school where i'm no better or no worse than the average doctor and i'm slotting into a system as effectively a cog in a machine and let's look at my marginal impact making videos on the internet and i and and what i said was like look i know these are different things but even if we use that uh, i don't know eighty thousand hours did an analysis of the number of lives that a doctor can save in their career it came out to eight or nine and I'm, I'm, I made the argument that, like, at the, at the very least, I could donate thirty thousand to the Ant Against Malaria Foundation by making money money off of YouTube, and in one, you, you know, in 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 thirty seconds of being on the internet, I will have saved more lives than I would have saved as in my whole career as a doctor. And a lot of people said, "Oh, wow, that's such an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of that." But there were people that said, "Oh my God, if this is how you think about medicine and being a doctor, then you shouldn't be a doctor because you can't possibly." that you can't possibly quantify the impact of being nice to the patient or, you know, being that person who says something nice to them in their moment of need. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so how would you go yeah. about, about thinking about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, again, it's like, okay, there are difference in outcomes that you would expect from someone being nice versus not nice to a patient, right? Um, good, good example. There's a surgery, uh, Close to my house, it has brilliant reviews all the time, and I know why because it's really good they're 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 really nice, they're really quick, they're really efficient they're 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 really everything you would kind of want um but look, there's a number attached to that that they, they score four point nine out of five on google's reviews you know there there are ways to kind of get at this data and will it be perfect? no will it be better than zero measurement and just kind of like hoping and guessing that that something's there uh yes so I think a lot of the time what people have trouble with is uh, compared to what? Uh, You know, they they don't think in comparative terms. Uh, This happens with spending. It happens with jobs. It happens with all these sort of different things. So they're like, okay, this thing is, you know, infinitely valuable uh, or something like that. Like a human life is infinitely valuable. And it's like, okay, but if you actually thought a human life was infinitely valuable, you'd be doing all these like quite crazy things. You'd be living even cheaper than I am um, to kind of like throw money at charitable organizations, uh, this sort of thing. There actually are values to this. It's just very uncomfortable to talk about and, and to think about explicitly. Like oh yes, uh, life is worth 1.5 million dollars or whatever. Uh, people people don't like that, but kind of the revealed preference is there is there is quantifications here you know you could survey 50 people who have gone to 50 different doctors and, and see which ones kind of score at the top of of you know a comfortability bedside manner and which ones score at the bottom you could even uh put like a willingness to pay number on this and start to get some sort of quantification of like how valuable that really is um it'd be messy it'd be crude it would take a lot of time and resources but you could um you know there there are kind of methodologies to to measure this sort of thing
1: i think i think part of the reason i mean so, so I think I think these two things are related. So, so you, you mentioned the average, you know, you, you're the average of the five people who you spend your time with. And I, I, I'm i actually not a fan of that at all. I actually I actually really don't like that approach. And, and then I think that's actually I, I think be, because I don't like that approach, I can I can kind of understand where people are coming from when they criticize, for example, you, Ali, if you say something like, well, I can have more sort of lives saved impact by just uh you know making a, a YouTube video uh, about my daily routine and then do- donating the ad money you know well whatever right yeah. um, I, I think the th- I think the, the issue is that um, it doesn't sit right with you know I, I think the friend thing doesn't sit right with me because it's it's taking a very sort of uh, instrumental uh, view of sort of your fellow human beings where, you know, um, I'm in this friendship. And I don't know, but it's just a heuristic. You're not saying like this is the only criteria that you're not saying this is the only thing I care about. But it, it sounds very instrumental to say I'm in this friendship so that I can become a better, you know, so I can become a better person. You know, that, that, that's why I'm in this. I, I want to surround myself with with you people because I want to be a better person or something. It, it's, it seems very instrumental. And um, I think I, I personally don't don't think that's uh sort of a a good way to view sort of other human beings as like instruments to achieve your ends and i think i think partly that's that's why the hospital thing also doesn't sit right because uh you know you you can imagine that you know people would want a doctor who is uh you know who intrinsically cares about the individual in front of them and is sort of intrinsically motivated to kind of be nice to the individual in front of them not extrinsically motivated to save the maximum number of lives in the abstract uh, and again it's like i i feel like anything that sort of starts to approach taking an instrumental view of, of other human beings that that's what doesn't sit right with people and i can empathize with that what do you guys
2: think yeah i i think i think it's a, a bit missing the concept so a, a similar uh, kind of analogy here is there's a famous utilitarian thing which is uh save five patients get rushed in. They're all kind of missing a vital organ and a perfectly healthy person walks in with a cough. Should the doctor, you know, kill that perfectly healthy person, grab an organ from each of them and spread them around. Now on the kind of very naive quick calculation, you're like, oh, well you're saving five lives and losing one. Like that's four in aggregate. Great. Let's do that. Um, but taking a step back, you're like, okay, that's like quite a bad society. That That's not a place you want to live where if you go into the hospital with a cough, you perhaps might be harvested for organs. Um, and th- this has like quite serious uh, ramifications. So I think if you were, like, to still end the point, you have to think, what uh, what heuristics do we want people to use? And maybe, like, using quantified heuristics when it comes to social engagements is, like, not good. Um, or using uh, kind of calculations like this when considering uh, doctor versus other career paths is not good. But it's, it's, it's tough because you already are using these heuristics anyways, they're just not stated, right? There are rules happening in your brain of uh, who you want to spend time with and and who you don't. You might not know them, the other person might not know them, but there is some sort of pattern to that. Like if we could like dissect you and kind of like pull out what's the actual uh, kind of patterns going on here. So it's actually more about like a recognition of what drives you or or what's causing a given relationship to work uh, rather than like specific prescriptions about what values you should have for the kind of person that you're uh, you're spending time with or the people that you're spending time with. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a really good point.
1: Yeah. I I think, yeah, absolutely. A a lot of what, what this stuff is, is just sort of making explicit what is otherwise very implicit. Um, And I I agree in instances where that's, that's what's going on. I'm fully on board the sort of make it explicit, you know, try and quantify it and so on. In the friends example, I'm going to try and push back against that a bit more. Do you, do you think sort of, Do you think that's, that's the way most people uh, sort of approach friendships of like implicitly gravitating towards people that they want to become like?
2: No, no, no. I mean, I think some, I think some people do. I think most people have a jumble of like 45 different things that they consider, and that fluctuates like the wind, and some days they really feel like hanging out with someone who's smart, and other days they really feel like hanging out with someone who's funny, and they have no predictive model and no idea which heuristic is taking over at which time, and it probably even changes based on the composition of the rest of their friends. So, you know, oh, I have <laughs> 55 friends who are smart, I have one friend who's funny, I'm going to spend more time with that, that friend who's funny, whatever. So right. I, I don't think that's the specific thing people are maximizing off of. I think it's maybe an underrated thing. Like I think people underestimate the impact of your social relations on on who you are as a person. So that kind of be something I wish people would weight heavier as a heuristic. Uh, but I I don't think that's like the the dominating uh, one in most people's model. Okay. Yeah. I I also think like
1: most people don't really approach it in that way. But I certainly you know on like tech Twitter, uh, there's certainly lots of people that kind of uh, would go by the heart. You know the average of the the five people you spend time with. Um, and I mean how how strongly do you actually follow this?
2: well it's it's one of a few it's one of a few heuristics, right so okay. um one thing I think I have the general mentality that you know if I think someone's going to like instill in me like quite actively bad habits uh, in given things like I find that quite uncomfortable and um, thinking about like oh this person's you know gonna gonna do that uh, but I think that it's not the only driving factor right so th- there are other like characteristics and, and this sort of thing and I think um a lot of things that I have might correlate with this kind of like making me a better person. So like, say I really enjoy uh, having high-level conversations. This is like one of my favorite things to do with people. It's like talk about intellectual, philosophical uh, optimization things. Um, That tends to be people who are kind of good at that, kind of think about that a lot, kind of kind of do that sort of thing. So maybe that's like a characteristic that I also end up valuing and you end up talking to people about, you know, things that are there. Another way to describe this is like common interest, right? So people with common interest with me tend to have interests in ways that I want to get better and improve and that sort of thing. So I would tend to prioritize, you know, conversations with with those sort of folks. Um, but yeah it's not it's not like i have a spreadsheet and i have like uh 50 friends ranked kind of like top friend second friend whatever it's more like i have this sense of what i would want my optimal friend group to to look like or to be like and then i kind of like try to move in that direction almost like you might have like an aspirational vision for your for yourself you have an aspirational vision for like your social networks
0: Mm. and is that based on well i imagine I, i i imagine that that aspirational friendship group would be based on Lots of different factors like you know uh, in interest in ethics, interest in quantification, general, how I, how, how being around them makes me feel. these peop- the, some of these people take care of their health, which more incentivizes me to take care of their health. Is the health. is that sort of the sort of um, uh, parameters that you're using?
2: Yeah, somewhat simil- somewhat similar to that. Although I would say maybe extra emphasis on areas that I'm weak at. Uh, so if there's something that I'm already like naturally very inclined towards, uh, then I might not need like the social boost to do that. So like, say I'm already a health nut, which I'm not. But if I was already a health nut, I probably wouldn't uh, need that kind of like social encouragement from from friends who are otherwise healthy. Uh, on the flip side, if I'm like uh, like health is the big struggle for me, that's like one of the things I really want to get better at. Uh, then having friends who care about health is like particularly useful. So there's maybe some sort of like uh, competitive advantage factor of uh, what sort of things you find difficult to do without some sort of social connection or, or that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, as, as we've been talking about this stuff, I've, I've, I've been thinking, I, w- I wonder how uncomfortable people would be hearing this, this, this conversation. Because like for, for us, and I, like this is, this is sort of the way that I naturally think anyway, just in a more, more sort of systematic approach to most things in life. But, you know, as as Tame was pointing out, especially when it comes to the social sphere, uh, things like dating and friendships and relationships and stuff, you know, it, it, there's just something very, very uncomfortable that doesn't sit well with people about how can you how can you possibly think like this? Um
2: yeah. Yeah. I think it is just uncomfortable things that you value, like say you valued something totally uh, strange, like, I don't know how good someone's hair was or something like that would be quite like a, a repugnant thing to come to like, oh, actually, when I really think about it, at the end of the day, I mostly care about my friends because they have really good hair. Um, so I think that that's the, the, the scary part about like pulling out heuristics of, of kind of what's going on in that tangled soup that, that makes someone your friend or not. Um, like the conclusions might be kind of uh, uncomfortable.
0: And So Do you think that's why people are, are uncomfortable with this, like because they you know, sort of in 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 their heads there is this thing of oh I I worry that I will come to an uncomfortable conclusion about X therefore I will not even think in in that way
2: like not explicitly they're not they're not thinking like oh yeah if I did quantify it I'd probably come to this they're more thinking that like any simple formula sounds like really bad and sounds kind of repugnant and that's like probably true like mm-hmm. if you pull pulled any. Uh, three characteristics like here are the three things that i care about when making friends people be like oh that's like that very simple bad model but I, I more call this like bad spreadsheeting or or like uh, underthinking about it as opposed to you know actually necessarily saying like we shouldn't have any quantification or shouldn't have any thought about what uh what makes me connect with people
0: yeah yeah that's a good point it's like uh, i often i often run into this when so i'm a bi- i'm a big fan about reading of uh, reading books about social social interaction and um, when I was in secondary school, I wasn't particularly good at talking to people and I decided, Hey, this is a, this is a skill. Social skills are a skill. And therefore I can find books and I can find like videos and stuff on how to do the thing and I can put them into practice. And whenever I'd, I'd, I'd mention this to any, any, but, but anyone, but my close friends who were like actually also into this stuff, like anytime I'd mention it to my mum, she would have a very like, you know, social skills can't be learned from a book. And I would say, well, yes, I agree that they can't exclusively be learned from a book. But but obviously, like when I say, I'm, you know, social skills can be learned from a book, it's like, you know, it's like saying surgery can't be learned from a book. Well, yes, it can't. But like you want to read the book first, to understand what's going on, and then you can practice it. Uh, but, you know, you you don't want to just kind of go in blind and kind of try try doing the operation without a set of guidelines. And I think I, w- I wonder if what's going on there is that when when we think of this stuff, if. If we're not used to thinking in ways in this sort of uh, sort of, uh, where a, a spreadsheet can have like 100 different things, and our default mode of thinking is that a, a spreadsheet must only have one or two things, we automatically take any suggestion of quantification to the extreme and say, oh, well, obviously you can't learn social skills from a book assuming it's just the book that you're, that, that you're learning social skills skills from.
2: Yeah, I, I do think this is true in general. I think that uh, I mentioned as you get older, you like get more heuristics and get more tools. If you try to solve a problem using one tool, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail and you just can't get very far, right? So... Uh, Despite me me loving spreadsheets and and thinking they're underutilized and, and this sort of thing, I do think that with the most complex decisions, you probably do want to come at it from like multiple methodologies and that will give you a more robust conclusion. But I think that meta process can be structured. So say I'm making an important decision about a career. Um, Yeah. Do I think you should make a spreadsheet and like evaluate the top 10 things you care about and and kind of put numbers on them? Uh, Yeah, that that seems like a useful exercise. It's going to give you a a bunch of insight as to, you know, this career might score higher than this. But do I also think it's worth, say, interviewing three people in each of those careers and asking them like a bunch of soft questions to get a better sense of narrative? Uh, Yes. Like that seems like it brings a very useful additional perspective. And then what you want to look for is robustness of conclusions, right? So, okay, I looked at this from five different angles and they're all kind of like pointing in this direction. This looks like a, a, better thing to do. So I think part of this is people imagining that you're only using one tool and then that being kind of like adding like an incomplete, uh, resulting in an incomplete picture of the thing. And like, I have some sympathy to this. I, I do think that you can... Um, you can run into trouble uh, if you use uh, solely one tool. And I don't think this is true just of spreadsheets. Uh, same is true of like talking to to people or that sort of thing. Like if you talk to people, you're gonna hear a lot about more conventional options. You're gonna hear a lot less about unconventional options, right? Like that that's a kind of natural uh, flaw that will come up from using that methodology. So I don't know, I think it's like, have a fat toolbox, apply a bunch of tools uh, to a given problem when you're, when you're encountering it. And maybe that's uh, people's aversion to it is that they're imagining it a bit more like exclusive than I think it actually ends up being. Mm. Yeah. Maybe if it's an unimportant problem, you only come at it with one approach, but
0: Mm. yeah, we kind of ran into this problem a few, a few months ago. We did, we did an episode where I, it was, we we, 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 we touched on the, on, on the, on the topic of dating and I recounted a, a story from a friend of mine uh, who was telling me that uh, the way I come across on the internet is too feminine, and I should have some more masculine energy by, uh, for example, not wearing pastel pink T-shirts. And I just I sort of brought that up, and we we had a lot of a lot of kind of emails about that episode, saying, "Oh my God, how can you possibly boil down dating and preferences to the color of your T-shirt? This is just utterly absurd." Um, and what we said in the in the following episode was that when we talk about a thing you know in our heads it's obvious that there are other things going on here and this is just one thing that we're talking about but i guess when it comes across in a podcast if you're talking about a thing some people assume that that is the only thing that you care about uh and there's just this 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 like massive difference between this is one of a zillion different things versus this is the only thing i care about
2: yeah and it is hard i think naturally if something's talked about 10 times people will tend to wait it like 10 times more important than if something's talked about once um, so if you dive into, like, a specific thing and you're like, okay, we're talking about this a whole bunch, then, you know, in some ways there is, like, a natural implication that, that is, like, a more powerful thing. Uh, on the other hand, of course, if you constantly zoom out and talk about, like, oh, yes, you know, any given topic we're talking about, of course, there's, like, 50 other things that are, like, kind of uh, related and tangential and connected, uh, then you'd never talk about anything specific ever, right? Like, you can say, oh, you know, having whiter teeth is, like, good for dating. Like, of course it is. But it's not it. Like, you couldn't just be a giant white tooth and get a bunch of dates. Like, it's, uh Yeah. It, it's kind of iterative factors and this sort
1: of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think in all these discussions, it's it's really just a language problem where the, the language we the language we use sounds very similar across uh, a few different contexts, even though the things we're talking about are at completely different resolutions. So to say, you know, to say, hey, Ali, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be more successful uh, with dating, you should wear more black t-shirts. You know, that that that's that's a piece of advice or, or, or that that's a comment at a at a very different resolution to you know, hey, hey, Ali, uh, the girl you're dating had a rough week. So you should like, <laughs> you know, just be a bit more compassionate to her tomorrow or something, you know, like the, the, the language we're using is pretty much structured in the same way you're kind of giving advice about Ali, you should do this. One of the things the black t shirt thing is like, a very high resolution, super general thing. You know, you're not you're not claiming that any single individual will truly be swayed by this. You're just claiming that in aggregate, there's probably some kind of effect there. Whereas the other thing uh, is actually about a single individual, and I think a, a lot of the issues come from. Um, kind of conflating the two things where someone's making like a, a very high resolution statement uh and then if you interpret that as the, as them actually making a very low resolution statement then it's like whoa man you're such a dick like i'm i'm an individual i'm not swayed by your black t-shirts
2: <laughs> yeah I, I i often wish that people would put like confidence intervals uh, on their claims uh, and this sort of thing and this is of course the, the very analytical solution to communication type problems but i i do think people don't uh yeah it's hard to understand like how what the strength of a given uh, kind of thing that you're describing is and also what your kind of like meta confidence in that thing is so if I'm like you know I don't know uh, yeah, sure. Wearing, wearing a given shirt is like good. That That's going to go well. Uh, how, 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 how significant effect size are we talking about? Are we saying that that's going to be like, you know, that's going to like quadruple, uh, you, you know, uh, results? Or are we saying this sort of thing? And when you look at like clinical medicine and, and studies of, of charitable effects, it's, it's quite specific, right? It's like we think this will improve income by X percent. Um, and if you just talked about it in kind of like the vague way that people tend to communicate with kind of no confidence intervals, no no description of like effect size, uh, then it, then it's easy to uh, get a perception that uh, the stated effect size is like a lot bigger than it actually is. That's basically what's going on is, is people are assuming like there's this massive effect size and you're trying to communicate. Uh, yeah, no, it's not a massive effect size, but it is like a net positive effect. And, and you know, in aggregate, these things can add up. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Just on this topic, we actually had an email from a listener a couple of days ago.
1: Uh, I, I think she she recently listened to I think the dating episode that you're talking about, Ali. I think in the in the email she mentions that her initial reaction to the T-shirt thing was like, you know, this is this is ridiculous. Uh, you, you know, there's uh, that this isn't how this isn't how people work, <laughs> basically. Um, but then she said that in her own sort of online dating profile, previously, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think basically she she found that something along the lines of she wasn't getting that many matches but when she changed the clothes that she was wearing in her, in her pictures she started getting a, a hell of a lot more matches um, and so like even though the idea you know the idea and how it came across in the podcast was initially like weird and you know oh this is silly like, you know, I'm, I'm an individual. People are individuals. Uh, you know, it did actually make a difference. <laughs> I think she's that.
2: I think I think convert. this swings to an example of things people are uncomfortable admitting. Like, wouldn't it be uh, horrible? Wouldn't it be a horrible world to live in that actually that the color of your shirt, like, is a big uh, predictor of whether people want to spend time with you uh, in a romantic context? Like... That That is not really the world we want to live in. We'd like to think that people are, like, a bit less superficial than that, a bit less easily uh, per, uh, easily fooled by by a, a shirt color. Um, but there are, is often this big gap between the world we'd like to live in and the world we actually do live in, and it, I think that causes uh, a, a lot of uncomfort in different people. This is part of why I don't think people flesh out their values that much, because I think sometimes your values are, like, quite uncomfortable when you stare them in the face, uh, as opposed to kind of, like, having them nebulously in the back of your mind. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of care about these five things, but if you actually, like... Kind of gun to your head, had to say which ones you cared about the most and the second most. It might not be that that good. It might not be that 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 happy a list to kind of look at. So I think the vagueness, um, yeah, keeps some romanticism. Makes humans love to think that that we're better than we are, that we care about you know things that are more noble and, and this sort of thing. And I think that uh, if you shine the harsh light of quantification on it, um, yeah, it, it can be it can be bad. It can be uncomfortable. It can be not what you want. But my argument would be, if you look at your values and you're like, "Oh, this is the values," and I'm like very uncomfortable with that. Maybe you should do something about that. Like, maybe you should work deeper on kind of figuring out like why is it that I care about this or care about that. It's hard to know how to change your actions if you don't understand the the kind of like metacognition that's going on of, of why you're doing the things that you're doing. What's your What's your approach to,
0: to figuring out values? Like, I, th- th- this is something that I've been sort of trying trying to research in depth because uh, I'm I'm working on a book about meaningful productivity and part of the equation is uh you know figuring out what direction that we're going to go in and something people say uh, is that if you figure out your values then that gives you a pretty good first approximation for you know what are the things you value therefore what are the things you should be doing with your life um and i've I've come across all these different ways of doing it like value lists and stuff but i'm i'm curious like what what's your approach to figuring like how how would you actually define a value like what what the hell is a value (laughs) Uh, and and how would you go about like Finding what your own values are.
2: Yeah, yeah, these are these are good questions. So I'll start with the disclaimer of like, I, I, I don't think that there like are objective values. I think they, they are kind of like nebulous subjective things floating around in your head and, and this sort of thing. So there's not really right or wrong values There are values that are like very different from other people's or, or this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, for, for me, when I think about say a value versus like a preference, um, it's something that you kind of like want perpetuated. Um, so if you say, like, uh, I, I I value chocolate ice cream, um, that would mean you, like, want uh, other people to, to eat chocolate ice cream. You want more chocolate ice cream to exist in the world. If you say, like, I have a preference for chocolate ice cream, I might not care if, if you eat vanilla ice cream or whatever else. It gets kind of there. So that's where some of the distinction goes. And then I think most of the time what people are talking about with values is they're talking about high-level values, like these, these kind of, like, primary, fundamental things. They're not talking about kind of, like, uh, means values. So, you know, maybe I uh, value being healthy on kind of a high level, and that means I should brush my teeth. But I don't value brushing my teeth. It is like a kind of a method to, to get that kind of higher level maximization uh, of your value. Uh, another thing that I think is very interesting uh, that I'll just briefly is I think values change way more than people give them credit for. So I think people imagine that these are kind of like very fixed elements uh, that are kind of like core to them. But I think if you actually look at what it seems like people value in terms of uh, kind of their actions and and and, uh, that sort of thing, uh, it it changes quite a lot over people's lives. It can be modified by experience and and this sort of thing. So I think there may be like a bit less fixed pillar than, than people expect. That being said, there probably is some convergence. Like probably if you got 100 people in a room to think about their values a lot, they would probably come to certain conclusions more often than than other conclusions. You know, they might move higher up on that kind of spectrum, like less more I value health, less I value brushing my teeth sort of uh, outcomes.
1: Do do your spreadsheets account for potential future value changes? Because presumably you're, you're evaluating things based on your current set of values and if there are some unknown future set of values which you might then shift towards, <laughs> then you know, maybe you should <laughs> change what you're doing today, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, value drift. Uh, it's, it's a huge concern. <laughs> um, current me really likes current me's values and does not want future me to have radically different values. Um, values are self-preserving. They, 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 they care about themselves being there. So if I could take a pill and know that I would no longer care about people or, or altruism, interestingly, of course, I wouldn't care about having taken the pill after I take it. But right now with my current values, I would say, no, I do not want that pill. Uh, And the pill doesn't have to be as dramatic as a pill. It could could be anything, right? That's going to affect your values. So yeah, I I definitely worry about uh, value drift. Uh, You know, if I was to say win the lottery and uh, win $50 million, uh, let's say, maybe right now, I would think, oh, yeah, I want to donate the bulk of that. Um, but I would probably set up a system to make sure that that actually happens. So, like, maybe put in a donor advised fund or donate it to a charity, then then Grants, or, or something like that, because I don't really trust 10 years from now, Joey. That guy could be cool. He could be bad. It, who, who knows? People change a lot more than they expect to. You always think you're, you're at your final self, and you're really not. So if you are worried that your next final self won't be, quite as, say, altruistic as your current self, uh, then you, you do want to uh, plan around that. Well, how, have your, how do you go about figuring out your values? Oh, boy. I mean, a lot of talking to people, a lot of introspection, a lot of that sort of thing. I think sometimes you, you know kind of things like nebulously floating around. For me, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, weightings of values, actually, because I kind of like knew that I had some of these like primary values. But it was much trickier thinking like, how much do I value A versus B? Uh, so I have, I have a system what I call the, the 3H system. So these are like my top three fundamental values. Uh, and this is helpfulness, happiness, and health um and there's kind of an interesting story for for each of them uh, happiness and, and helpfulness are, I think, are like quite quite self evident. A lot of people have these values to, to some extent. You know, they they want to help other people, be altruistic, and they want to kind of be intrinsically happy. But those can break down in, in all sorts of interesting ways. Like, by happiness, do you mean life satisfaction happiness, or do you mean moment to moment hedonic happiness? Th- those are very different optimization paths. And when I think about, say, helpfulness versus happiness, how much do I value that? Do I actually fundamentally fundamentally value health, or is health actually just a proxy to get at health and happiness again? So. I think what what I wanted to do is, I wanted to kind of get this all down into like one page. Uh, I wanted to get down, like, what are my fundamental values and what are kind of like my sub values uh, in those values so that I can kind of like look over them and modify them. And it's a changing page. It's, you know, it's a Google Doc. I, I, I modify things and that sort of thing. But the, the higher level stuff sticks and I have ratios. So for me, each value is one order of magnitude less important than the value uh, before it. So helpfulness is like 90% of my time, energy, focus, et cetera. Uh, happiness is like 9% and health is like 0.9%. And then that, that other 0.1% is, you know, pancakes or whatever else kind of doesn't uh, fall into one of those modifiers.
0: <laughs> Interesting.
2: because
0: um, So when I do these kind of value exercises, one thing that often comes out for me is this, like I very highly value autonomy slash freedom which has um played out in my life in sort of my biggest fear being shackled to a job that I might potentially not enjoy for <laughs> example but then I think well how much do I actually value autonomy and freedom and it's sort of if integrity and honesty is on the list of values but like intuitively I know that I really value autonomy and freedom but like would I I don't know be dishonest for the for the for the sake of autonomy and freedom it's like pro- probably not but does that mean that I value honesty and integrity more than freedom? But maybe. But like that doesn't. That feels to not really sit right with me. Where I where if I think about you know what's the primary thing I'm always optimizing for? It's always autonomy and freedom. So, uh, yeah. Any, the, any, any thoughts on that issue?
2: So there's probably like uh, curves uh, that that matter. So if you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, you have to like fulfill these survival values before moving up to the, the next thing. And I think there might be like minimum thresholds for some values that that don't continue scaling up. So let's say my, my health value, only only like 1% of my time and energy. But if I was like extremely unhealthy, like extremely sick or something like that, that value of course would, would get a lot higher. Uh, it, how it's kind of ranked in its context is based on how easy it is to kind of like maximize or satisfy certain, this sort of thing. Uh, part of why health only gets like 1% of my energy is because I actually think it's like quite easy. Um, I think it's, it's it's a lot easier for me to be healthy than it is for me to be happy for example. I think that's just like a much more challenging problem. Um, so I think that kind of comes to it so maybe what the like the part of integrity that you value is actually like quite easily achieved and yeah if you kind of like create theoretical situations where you really have to like trade it off and you're kind of like below that threshold then uh, then it's there. One oh, interesting thing interesting with values yeah. sorry I was just saying oh that's interesting haven't,
0: haven't thought haven't thought of it in that way before uh, go on.
2: I think some people have maximization values for some things and satisfaction, satisfying values for other things. And that also can, can make it quite messy. So maybe for integrity, you don't need to like maximize, like you don't want to be like the most integri- integrity focused person ever, but you have this like minimum threshold, like you want to be X level of, of integrity. Uh, and once that's satisfied, you're, you're kind of like indifferent. Uh, my values, for instance, happiness and health are both satisfying goals. There, there is a level of both, which I'm just like, cool. I don't want to be the healthiest person in the world. I don't want to be the happiest person in the world. I kind of want to be an eight out of 10 on both. And that's like good. Like once I've, once I've asked that, uh, good enough where helpfulness. So like saving other people's lives and doing altruism, that's a maximization goal. I don't really have a number of which I'd be like, yep, I'm happy with that. It's, it's kind of like the, the infinite ambition, uh, that you have.
1: What, what's the point of, uh, writing these things down and ranking them and so on. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, there's some fuzzy nebulous internal process in your head, um, which consists of your values and that's how you evaluate things. Once you've written it down, like what what changes?
2: <laughs> well, one thing is you, you live by them more. Um, so health, for example, got added because I figured that I would not prioritize it. Uh, It it tends to be the thing that's forgotten. And as funny as it sounds, even putting it down as a 1% value has made me think like, oh, this is something I intrinsically care about. I do want to maximize longevity and and this sort of thing. And I am healthier than I was before I had it as kind of a a value in my mind or a designated thing. So I I think that's one thing. I think your actions end up corresponding to your specified values. It also helps you kind of like break down, if you're kind of imagining it as like a tree, like your top-level value, you can kind of break it down further. So in my one-page document, I have like, uh, you know, for for health, for example, I break that down to like three subcategories of like physical health, mental health, and habits. And then I have three like pillars of each of those that I think if I do well on, I'm probably gonna uh, success on that category. So for physical health, uh, if I sleep eight plus high quality hours, if I eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And for exercise, if I use my feet get to get to work and uh, exercise 10 minutes of hard workout a day, uh, that will probably maximize my kind of physical health goal. So you can kind of like break these down and, and actually right below my values, I have like what my morning routine is or my day routine. And that is very closely corresponding to these kind of like ultimate values that I want. And it's very motivational to, to be able to go like, okay, yeah, I'm doing this 10 minute workout. Not because... I want to do a 10-minute workout today, but because it kind of uh, fits into this overarching set of goals that I want to uh, uh, succeed on. So then so then the values list, is it really more of an aspirational
1: values list in that you then change your behavior to match that rather than these are my existing values, you know?
2: I think it's most useful to start with your existing values, but then think about where you do want to put time and attention and, and focus on kind of like making certain values better. So again, I think they're more multiple than you think. So I think a lot of people... Yeah, we'll think that like, you know, I really care about hedonic happiness, don't care about life satisfaction. Um, but then as they get older, they tend to care a lot more about life satisfaction and a lot less about hedonic happiness. And it's like, huh, that's interesting. And I actually think you can do this deliberately, too. Like, you can be like, I want to value health. Like, that's that's an example. I'm going to put it on my chart. I'm going to integrate it. And now I really do think it is an intrinsic value at about 1% weight. Like, it really has kind of integrated with my mindset. Kind of like uh, if you hear something said 10 times, if you hear that health is part of your values and you identify as I'm a person who cares about health, uh, it kind of like gains a weight or prominence in your, uh, yeah, your, your, your morals, your actions, that sort of thing
0: hmm yeah that makes sense yeah I've definitely found that as well like especially in the in in the health example where in the past I just sort of had this vague thing of oh yeah I guess I, I kind of want to be healthy but then it was it was only like last year where I actually wrote down that you know health health is something that I value probably you know above most other things that without my without health there is no Uh, there's effectively no happiness uh or with without good health my happiness will will likely be severely limited therefore i should take care of my health more i guess like before hearing you describe it as like maximizing versus versus satisfy satisficing i just hadn't quite because for example a few few months ago i signed up with a personal trainer and i said okay i want to go i want to get six pack abs sometime at some point this year it's been a it's a you know a a fun goal to work towards and then like Every week, he'd be like, "You know, how's your nutrition going?" And I'd be like, "Well, I got a takeaway last night." And he's like, mm, "Okay," <laughs> and "Have you been counting your calories?" And it, it it took a few months of this, a few a few weeks and months of this, for me to realize that actually, I don't care about getting six pack abs. I care about being healthy enough, and healthy enough is the the current state where I'm at. And yes, I would like my biceps to be a little bit bigger because you know, dating. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, I actually don't care about the six pack abs, and that was enormously freeing. I was like, "Great, that means." If I do the thing of eat food, mostly plants, not very much, um, and maybe, you know, skip breakfast each day, hashtag intermittent fasting, then it doesn't really matter if I get a takeaway every night, provided I fulfill, you know, roughly these parameters of mostly going grilled meats rather than fried meats, blah, blah, blah. And now I feel like, damn, this is just so much more liberating um, because I don't have to be counting calories because I've actively decided that this is not something I value.
2: That's actually a big thing that I think is another benefit of kind of like specifying it out. I think people have all these values, but they don't realize the trade-offs, right? So yes, I want six-pack abs, but do I want to have six-pack abs enough for the trade-offs in like tasty food? Um, if the answer is no, let go of one of those goals. Otherwise, you're going to be constantly frustrated where you're kind of like, oh, I really wish I had the six-pack abs, but uh, I don't, I am not going to do it because I like this food. Um, when you kind of like figure out, okay, how do my values conflicts? How do I resolve those conflicts? It, it is, it is nice because you can't just drop stuff like would I like to be, like, I was a very fast runner as a kid. Would I like to be a super fast runner as an adult? Sure. Would I like to be a super fast runner enough to prioritize it above a million other things in my life? No. So there we go. It's It's gone. It's, it's it's you know, it's a goal that I would certainly love if I could snap my fingers and, and have it. But it's not a goal that I am willing to kind of trade off the time and energy that it would take to kind of uh, make that happen.
1: How did you conclude that your 90% value is helpfulness?
2: Yeah, so... I think I've always cared about people and and like many people have always cared about people. So there's like some kind of intrinsic drive there that most people have. And I think a lot of it was figuring out just like how extreme the the level of suffering in the world was. So I think that when I was young, uh, you know, I imagined that the world was like my world, like the the kind of most salient things. And there there were problems in that world and, you know, issues, education reform and this sort of thing, but they were quite small. And I think in that world where you know, everyone's like an eight out of 10 or, or something like this happiness. Uh, I don't feel the same pull uh, to kind of like helpfulness being this really important value. But when I found out that like, oh, you know, there's factory farming and the animals are in really bad conditions or, oh, there's extreme poverty and, and people are really, really having tough lives or war or this sort of thing, uh, then, it, then it really changed. It kind of felt like, wow, this, this is quite important. I think maybe the most like fundamental value that I find very persuasive and very core is this like veil of ignorance argument. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have, are familiar with this. Um, but maybe for folks uh, listening in case they're not, the basic idea is you don't know who you're going to be. Um, you could be born as anyone or, or anything. Uh, you're kind of like floating above above the world behind this veil of ignorance. Uh, how would you want the world to look? And oh, I found that very, very compelling. Um, like I, I found it very compelling when I first heard it. The more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, I just continue to think this is very compelling. And that's part of the the, the kind of uh, salary thing that we talked about at the beginning, right? So I have kind of done what I wish a lot of people would do, which is you know kind of uh, taking that veil of ignorance uh, aspect and, and applied it. Of course, it you know there's all sorts of caveats and that sort of thing. You know, you get free healthcare and countries and how do you value that? So it's not like I I actually think my life is on average with the average person, but at least I'm kind of uh, symbolically uh, gesturing towards that. Like uh, I would like the world to be more fair and and more happy, especially for, for those in kind of very extreme situations. So I think it's the extreme suffering that kind of like amped this up and realizing that I could do so much about it too. So I think a lot of people have this perception that, yeah, it just takes like an incredible amount of uh, time and energy to, to, to do this thing that's beneficial. Like, you have to, you know, become a doctor and dedicate your whole life to it to, to ever help somebody. But if I can, like, realistically save a life for $3,000, um, that is really, really a different bar uh, than kind of uh, changes my, my level of uh, optimization and this sort of thing. So, yeah, I guess I feel like I can probably maintain, you know, quite a high level of happiness, quite a high level of helpfulness. And then I have a bunch of like spare cycles, you know, a bunch of spare energy, spare time and this sort of thing. So kind of like put more and more of that into helpfulness. Helpfulness, I think is like the trickiest goal for me, because of course it is maximizing. It's not satisfying. So it's not really like if I save a million lives, I'm happy. I, I would just want to kind of save two million lives. Um, but uh, I think it's actually okay to have one maximizing goal. One maximizing goal can be really nice. It can kind of give you, like, the fuel and ambition to, like, continue to do things. Uh, where you get into trouble is if you have, like, multiple maximizing goals, then then you're, then you're in real trouble. Because then you're trying to... It's very hard to independently maximize two factors.
0: Hmm. I'm just going through, like, my... <laughs> sort of the way I've been living there for these, these last few months and thinking, like, what is... What's the thing that I'm maximizing? Um, I feel like... Yeah, it's... I wonder if having like maximizing goals is 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 part of why we get this hedonic hedonic treadmill in a way where if you don't think about like like for like for example in in personal finance type circles they always say you know th- think about how much money you actually want to be aiming towards and then and and like write this number down and like stick to it because if you don't then money by default ends up being a maximizing thing where you make two million dollars a year and suddenly you're like well okay well I know someone who makes ten million dollars a year wouldn't that be nice and the the goalpost keeps on shifting. Whereas theoretically, if you've decided, okay, I can very comfortably live off X amount per year, therefore I don't need to now maximize money in all these in, in order to get more than X amount per year, therefore I can spend that time doing things that I actually do care about. Is that, that thought process I would imagine I imagine be quite liberating? I, I haven't gone through it myself.
2: Yeah, that's like a long stoicism lines and, and kind of getting to more of this, uh, yeah, happy with what is. I think from a happiness perspective, weirdly, you probably don't want to set happiness as a maximizing goal, even if that was your top goal, because it's one of those weird things where, yeah, the more you focus on it, that the, the more elusive it becomes. Mm. Um, but uh, other goals, you know, if you do want to become like the best weightlifter ever, like you probably do need to set that as a maximizing goal and just like like really uh, go for it. So some goals aren't very susceptible to maximization frameworks. I feel like folks like you and folks like Lucia
1: and, you know, the, the EA community in general, um, may, maybe this is a, a mischaracterization, but it, it feels like if you're, if you're wired in a way where, for example, you, you and Lucia, for example, just really care about this helpfulness thing, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very simple to distill your values down into like, okay, I've got the it's the helpfulness thing right at the top. That's like the main thing I care about. Yeah, a little bit of health, a little bit of happiness, but really it's about the helpfulness thing. I think most people's uh, motivations, I mean, myself included, are just a much weirder mix of like, you know, I want some, you know, some uh, some social validation from my peers. I want, I want, I want to be, you know, I want to <laughs> so sort of broadly have fun day to day. Yeah, I want to be healthy. Yeah, it'd be nice to be helpful. Like, do, do you feel like you... Uh, I feel like EA folks have a particularly easy job here because you're sort of wired in a way where you really just care a lot about this one thing because, for example, you, you sort of hear the veil of ignorance thing and you're just really compelled by it, whereas I hear the veil of ignorance thing and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, I, I can see why you'd be compelled by it. Am <laughs> I compelled by it? A tiny bit, <laughs> you know? Like most people have, have not found the one thing that they just find super compelling that they can just like build their entire lives around.
2: Yeah. So one thing is, I think you can, uh, like, you. I think you can pick and build your life around this to, to some extent. Like, I think there is, again, more flexibility that, than you would think. So, like, say I got knocked in the head and like altruism was, was gone or took the pill, whatever, um, and I'm like, okay, now I need some other kind of goal to to, to maximize. Um, I think I could be like, well, you know, I I kind of like this happiness thing and I kind of uh, think that life satisfaction is more important and I think that a good way to life satisfy would be to like write a really good book. Okay, cool. I'm going to set that as my maximizing goal. I want to write a fantastic book. So I I think you can use uh, some deliberateness in this. I think a lot of people's values are, uh, you're looking looking a step down. So like social validation, right? Do you like intrinsically care about social validation? I'm not sure. I think probably that that's like a, a... uh, you know, need that needs to be satisfied to be to be happy. I think that's okay, does yeah. back to like some some sort of level of personal happiness. Um, so once you pull that, once you say like, okay, well, happiness is one of my fundamental goals. Then what are the kind of like paths to optimize that? It might turn out that like social validation is like one of those one of those paths, and like is uh pretty pretty stable as one of those paths. And and that probably is true. Like that's true for a lot of people that, that validation score is like quite high. Um, but yeah, I, I do think I do think you can pick a pillar. I do think you can pick uh, yeah, almost if you have like values as uh revealed by by kind of how I act right now and then you have like values that I would like like to to have if I was like you know the the person controlling the sim of myself walking around the little world um I think you can like push your values a little bit closer to that you probably can't like change them massively like if you uh really care about a and then you're like oh I actually from a kind of like philosophical perspective shouldn't care about a that that's quite tough but I do think that you can like kind of move them in in your more aspirational direction
0: what what's the menu of options here because for example you you said social validation is a subset of happiness um what do you have have we got like a list of you know a top level values that where we can sort of just be like okay yeah i'll I'll, I'll go for that one or is, is is that too simplistic a way of looking at it?
2: Yeah, it's 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 a bit tricky. So I think I, I there are many people who say, oh, it, it all boils down to happiness. Like even my altruism drive, it's just that like I would not be able to be happy with myself unless I was X level altruistic. But then I think that's like kind of useless as, as a framework, right? Because you're like, OK, cool. Everything boils down to happiness. Now, what the heck are we even talking about when we talk to values? Um, so I think it's more something that you think is like. Uh, fundamental and, and not a means to an end. So, uh, for example, I have friends who are like very libertarian, and they would choose freedom over happiness. There, there would be like worlds where they would be more free but less happy, and they'd be like, "Yes, I would. I would pick that." That to me feels like freedom uh, starts to be a more fundamental value there, as opposed to uh, a maximization uh, to, to kind of happiness. Um, where if someone was like. Yeah, I care about this, but mainly why I care about this is because it would like make me feel good and make me feel happy and this sort of thing. Then it feels a bit more like like a means to an end. So I think if you try to like pull that out, like would I still care about this if I knew for a fact it would not, uh, you know, maximize these these other values that I have? So maximize happiness, for example. Then I think it starts to move into the more like fundamental value category. And there are probably like some things that are more common up here and, and things that are less common. You know, fairness is one that a lot of people have, for example. Like they have a really strong fairness drive, kind of outside of individual happiness and, and this sort of thing, you know, that, that's, that's a common one. Uh, the 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 ones described in righteous mind and, and that sort of thing, I think those pillars uh, can, can quite often be uh, independent. You know, someone is, is like willing to be pure, uh, independent of how it affects their happiness and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious when you think about, because you guys are both productivity orientated, when you think about kind of, I want to become better at A, uh, where does it stop? Like, where, where does it tend to dead end uh, in terms of like, oh yeah, okay, like this has, has met the end. Uh, how high up do you think you go towards something like a fundamental value?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this. I feel like in general, I'm, I just don't really care about maximizing. In, you know, I, I can't think of anything I care about maximizing. I, I, I'm just very like, you know, sat, get to the satisfied point. Or, oriented with everything. <laughs>
2: yeah. That's probably good from a happiness perspective. Like, Maximization, like I think ambition, ambition is very useful, um, but it's also probably like quite bad for happiness in most situations.
1: Yeah, I was, um, there was a, uh, I was Esther Perel or something, uh, some sort of relationship coach type person was on some podcast recently, and she was kind of talking about this where with a lot of her clients, a lot of her clients are sort of, uh, you know, very analytical type people, um, you know, maybe they work in tech and 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 things like that, and a lot of them take a very Uh, well, sometimes issues come from taking a very maximizing approach to your relationship where, you know, you've been with a partner for a few years and, you know, the the mind starts to wonder of like, oh, you know, maybe I could find a better partner who's, you know, the same but a bit more attractive or like the same but a bit more nice or or whatever. And it's, it's, you know, taking the maximizing approach to relationships in that sense, um, at least in her experience, leads to more problems um and, and it's the people who have a very satisfying approach um to their relationship who are, who are actually much happier um,
2: yeah i, I think uh, like, i'm very sympathetic to that
1: yeah that, I, I, that sounds
2: like the happiness one
1: yeah i th- i think i'm totally on yeah i think satisfying is, is definitely how i approach sort of uh yeah the sort of social realm um
0: hmm.
2: yeah i think Yeah, certain goals. Even if your goal is maximizing, weirdly, it's better to have satisfied values, like like happiness, (laughs) and most social things. I, I think are like this too, because yeah, there's. Negative flow through effects of, of kind of like constantly being analytical about stuff and it's also just processing power So one critique that I hear about, you know being very analytical all the time is like oh don't you get like tired and like Isn't that a lot of analytical thought and you kind of like mm-hmm. are, are done with it? And there is to some extent this like maybe I find it like personally fun to make a spreadsheet so like okay cool It doesn't tire me but <laughs> if you have only so many analytical hours in a given day, I think you do want to think about which problems are going to benefit from those analytical hours the most and like some problems are very good to to, that you can make really good analytical progress on them quickly and other problems are completely intractable yeah
0: yeah on the so on the on the maximizing satisfying thing i've been thinking about like my own personal goals and uh, a i don't really like to think of goals because i feel i i I have an aversion to the word goal but that aside with my own personal goals (laughs) um i feel like they're mostly satisfying, but um for example, like I am writing this book at the moment and I know I want, I want this book to be as good as it can, I, as good as I can possibly make it. Now that feels like a, it feels like a satisfying goal in that I want to be satisfied with the book I've written, but it also has an element of being a maximizing goal. And I want to make, I, you know, it's, it's, it's on the road to maximization that I will end up along this thing of, okay, I'm I'm now satisfied with, the, with, the, with this book. Equally one uh, sort of goal that's been in my mind with this, this book which will come out like three three years from now so it's like very kind of (laughs) medium-term plan is i would love for this to hit the new york times bestseller list just kind of it's so it's so arbitrary and so stupid and every time i think about it it actively makes me less happy and enjoy the journey of writing the book less because now that there's there's this baggage associated with it but at the same time i i I kind of think oh this would this would be kind of nice like i guess i don't know any uh, an an actor might be thinking oh i guess. I guess it would be kind of nice to win an Oscar for this performance like does how how does how does that work within our framework of like maximizing versus satisfying or
2: yeah well I feel like the question becomes what's the useful frame for you so if someone's like motivated by, oh yeah, I want to hit the New York sellers list. And like that, like gets them up in the morning and like gets them to type a whole bunch and that sort of thing. I think like, cool, great. Put, put the New York best times list, like on your mirror and, and use that as, as fuel. On the other hand, if it's an anchor, um, if it's, uh, you know, slowing you down, then I, I think it's like not a very valuable, uh, kind of like sub goal or a stated thing to, to get there. So I think, uh, yeah, creative, creative work is really, really messy with this. So I, I, I write quite a bit to, you know, boring nonfiction about how to start a charity uh, that I try to make entertaining. Um, but I have found that there's like huge variation day to day in like how good writing quality is. And, and a lot of writers describe this that like, yeah, one day it's just flowing and the next day it's just like garbage. Um, and you want to set up goals that make you have more of those like excellent days. Uh, and sometimes that's, you know, uh, goals that are a little bit of and other times it's like, no, I'm just going to like write when it really sparks my fancy and that that's how I like output the best thing. So to yeah to put analysis on whether to have analysis or not uh if you were to like track your your days and like think like how good a writing day is this and then think about like okay i thought about this goal for like a week while writing i didn't think about this goal for a week while writing and then you saw what the output is that that seems to be like the most valuable strategy for that so if you know something is like not a useful dot like trash it like try to try to get rid of that uh, desire or at least uh, put it in the back of the mind so it's not salient yeah that seems very helpful like uh, just even, even even though I haven't explicitly tracked this,
0: implicitly I know that whenever I think of <laughs> kind of the the marketing of the book, I think, oh god. Whenever I think of the writing of a good book, I think, yeah. Uh, and it's the marketing side that I just feel a real aversion to. Even knowing that marketing is half of the equation to get on the on the New York Times list, <laughs> and writing a book, or writing a good book is the other half. Um,
2: yeah. Well, you don't have to think about marketing right now, right? Like, there's probably no particular benefit to, to thinking about it a couple of years in advance. Um, so it does seem like quite an easy thing to like bury and just be like, yeah, whatever. I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Uh, I want to have a book that is the book quality equivalent of the New York Times, yeah. <laughs> and that's the, worry the, about the first step. Right. Absent marketing, yeah.
0: Um, one thing that, that that I'd written down that I were I'm very keen to get your thoughts on is how. So you you mentioned that you did this kind of dating. Okay, Cupid thing, and then you've sort of found someone after writing a four-page message to them that you've been in that you were in a relationship with for ten years. Um, when it comes to dating, I think kind of both Tame and I are having this quote problem. Is is this thing of explore versus exploit? In that I feel like I've I, I I have not dated very much. I have been on fewer than ten first dates. I think, uh, or sort of round about that round about that ballpark, and so. AI, I don't really know quote, what I'm looking for beyond like just the the very high level things of I, you know, it would be nice to uh, to find someone who I find attractive and who I get on with, and that's basically sort of the more, the, the 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 most kind of narrow I've I've, I've broken that down to. Um, and then there's also a thing of okay, what if I meet someone who I think okay, yeah, I can I can I can see ourselves getting I can I can see us getting married, I can imagine a future with this person, but it's like. You know, I'm, I'm I'm 26. I've only been on like 10 10 dates. Uh, do I really know? Have I have I, have I really got enough of a sample size to be able to make this decision? Especially if it's uh, especially if it's not a hell yes. Especially if it's like a, uh, you know, I'm I'm not really sure how, how how to feel. But like maybe yeah, maybe things would would work out for this person. I'm 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 not like in love with them or anything like that. But like you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I, I just don't have the capacity to feel that. Do you do you get what I'm getting at? Explore versus exploit.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I definitely do. I think one thing people forget with this sort of thing is often you have more data than you think, right? So yes, you personally have gone on 10 dates, and that's like very relevant, useful information. But you also know many other relationships, right? You know, presumably, you know, friends in relationships, you know, parents in relationships, this sort of thing. And that is not like, uh, like, zero, some some data, you know, if Uh, you know, the five uh, relationships, Uh, if if you're considering a relationship or you're in a relationship and you're like, I'm, you know, this level of of connected, satisfied, whatever, and it seems like that is way below the average of my peers who are in long-term relationships, like that's probably a sign, you know, that's probably indicative of that sort of thing. So that would be one thing. The other thing I would say is in terms of data, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, data in a purely romantic context, right? So if you go to like a general social setting and you're like, wow, I clicked with this person like X amount, Uh, and this is, like, really great, Uh, you want to kind of, like, find that uh, cross-applicably in a a romantic situation. Uh, One of the advice that I heard that I've always followed and I think is quite valuable, which is, like, marry your best friend. Uh, And I think the nice thing about that is you have had way more of a sample size of friends uh, than you've had of romantic partners, typically. Most people have. Uh, And that's, like... uh, A very useful frame to kind of put things in because then you're thinking like, okay, is this, you know, my best friend? Is this someone who I could, you know, spend a lot of time with and and kind of continue to enjoy that time at at high levels of volume and and this sort of thing? And I I... think sometimes people have higher bars for friendship than uh, relationships. So I think sometimes it does end up uh, uh, leading to somewhat different criteria. Yeah, I think even if you're in like your
1: 20s or whatever, you have probably met pretty pretty much uh you know a pretty wide gamut of sort of people and you know you probably have met enough people there you know already that you can have a pretty good sense for like who do I get on with and so yeah I I feel like you and I actually talked about this like a year ago or something where you were saying the same thing of like oh you know I need to do more exploration I've only been on like a few dates or something um but yeah I, th- I think like the the meaningful data points are not just dates it's all just like people you know and people you've met and you, mm-hmm. you, you know you, you you probably have a a pretty good understanding of of the range of people that uh, that you that you could possibly meet.
2: Yeah. That being said there there is a more like softy psychology interpretation of this in terms of if you feel like you do not have enough data even if you actually do. Yeah. Uh, there can be a difference resulting there, right? So uh, you might be able to say, like, okay, well, I can extrapolate from friends and other relationships I've seen, and yada, yada, and I think I have, like, a pretty good model. Um, but there is something somewhat different about experiencing something. And if you kind of, like, feel like, oh, you know, at the end of the day, even if I met the perfect person, I'd feel, like, quite uncomfortable, like, being in a long-term relationship at this point. I mean, it's that's a valuable thing, to be honest with yourself about as well. Uh, and that could be the case, even if, yes, from a straight analytical perspective, you probably have, like, enough data points to, to, to make a call. Hmm. This is something I was I was talking about with my with my housemate last night where
0: it was it, it was it was on this topic of I so I think I am the sort of person and feel feel free to, to tell me on bullshit I'm bullshitting myself here. I think I am the sort of person where if I'm in a kind of long-term relationship with someone I th- I still think I would quite like the bulk like 90% of our time to be spent doing our own thing and 10% of our kind of waking hours to be spent kind of hanging out together or maybe do, doing something together. Uh, and I wonder if, and, and, and my housemate's view was that if that, if this ninety ten separation is what you're, what you're thinking, then chances are you're not ready for a long-term relationship because at the point where you become ready for a long-term relationship, that number start, you start to actually want to spend more time with the person. And this is why people move in and this is why people get married because they want to spend more time together. But then I do have a few friends who are in kind of very long term relationships, been married, married for 10 plus years or like, yeah, actually, you know, we're both we both spend 90 percent of our time doing different things. And then maybe on the weekends, we'll actually we'll do something together. Do you have any 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 thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. uh, Similarly, I, I have friends and connections who I think are in like an interesting way to frame it is thinking about how much coordination you want to do with, with the partner, right? So different uh, relationships, whether they be friendships or, or family members or that sort of thing, require different levels of like coordination. And maybe there's a friend who you like really like seeing once a month, but if they were your roommate, they would drive you absolutely nuts. Um, and people have different like bars for each level of that coordination. Uh, it could be that... Uh, you just don't want to have a super high-level coordination with someone. Like, I I definitely know people who are long-term, happy relationships, living separately, and and that's how they like it. Like, they don't want to be roommates with their romantic partner. Um, And that's, like fine. I think that, yeah, there probably are, like, some statistical trends of, like, as you spend more time with someone, you end up coordinating with them, kind of, for better or worse, just because it's convenient in a bunch of ways and, and this sort of thing. Uh, but I don't think it's, like, an insane model to have. I do think some people are just more independent and want less coordination with a given person. And I would guess that this would reflect a little bit in other uh, relationships that you've had. Like, you know, do has has every roommate you've ever had driven you nuts? Um, that might be, like, a little bit indicative that have a romantic partner of a roommate will be like more challenging. Um, like uh, it, you know, it won't be uh, all sunshine and rainbows. On the other hand, if you tend to love having roommates, maybe it is a matter of like finding the right partner who you would love to have as a roommate, and it's just that the partners you previously had might not fit that sort of like uh level of, of coordination. One thing I think is unfortunate that people do with relationships is they kind of like have all these knobs and they correlate them at all the same time. So, like if you've spent x number of years with that person you are now like obligated or expected or something to move in and like that seems quite quite unfortunate because there is just a lot of human variants and maybe some people don't want to move in ever maybe some people want to move in a lot quicker uh, and i wish there was like a bit more willingness to perhaps go against social norms when it comes to that sort of thing and mm-hmm. do what seems to be working better for the relationship so yeah i, I know people who are separate um I, I i would say it would depend on how it how you feel like your connections work with other interactions and that would give some more predictive models
0: okay so just on that so so, so on that note so i've 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 had roommates for the last like well since for for those nine years basically since university but since graduating three years ago uh i've had like one roommate for 18 months and another roommate for the last like eight months and it's been really good like i love having a roommate like slash, slash, slash slash flatmate but i think part of the reason why i love it is because we are living together but there is almost on on, on my end anyway there's almost zero requirement to hang out with them in that like you know if i am if i want to stay up till midnight playing World of warcraft or doing some youtube stuff then that's totally cool it's not like there is an an, an obligation of all right you know it's 8 p.m and now we need to spend some time together uh, <laughs> my housemate would say that that's a sign of immaturity on my part <laughs> um <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah any, I, any thoughts in, in my mind that doesn't specify not being able to live with a romantic partner you just need to be clear in terms of what the expectations are like i've lived long term with with multiple romantic partners i'm living long term with a romantic partner right now and it's not like we're under obligation to go to bed at the same time or, or that sort of thing i would actually say those sort of things that that sounds a bit more like you've freshly moved in with someone than you've actually been living with someone for like 12 months or, or that sort of thing like uh you know people do do independent stuff and and that sort of thing. I I think the real trick is just, yeah, making sure both people are on the same page because you don't want someone who's like, oh yeah, I expect that we're going to spend after work time together every day and someone else to be like, oh, I expect we're going to spend after work time together at the same frequency of dating, but then sleep in the same bed. Um, Then you run into troubles if like the the expectations are really different. But Mm. again, the benefits of pulling out your values, kind of knowing what you're you're looking for and and actually being able to be clear about it. Uh, If you have no idea, feel like, okay, I want to move in with someone and I have no idea how it's going to go. I mean, then your expectations and reality are almost definitely going to be different. (laughs) Okay. That's very cool. Um, fun thing that I'd, lo- I'd love to get your opinion
0: on just on this, on this topic is, and again, this is the, the you know, this is, this is turning into a personal therapy session, but oh well, like <laughs> how much do you weight the attractiveness of your partner taking into account the fact that of, of hedonic adaptation, et cetera, like all of, all of, all of the nuances associated with, uh, having, having a preference for looks, uh, how do you think about it or how did you think about it, say, Ten years ago, when you were, were doing this online dating type stuff,
2: yeah, uh, it's always not been that important uh, to me. Um, so that's like a, a, a nice answer. Now, I would say, revealed preference wise, a lot of my partners have been very attractive. Some have not, but but a lot, a lot have. So I, I don't know. Maybe there's like some some factor there that I'm not uh, being honest enough with myself on. But I, I genuinely do think it's not the biggest factor. Uh, I think an interesting model to have is there are factors that that fade and factors that don't right so if you're looking at something like uh looks uh no matter how attractive someone is that becomes a less significant part of the relationship once you're 10 years in like period that this that just everyone uh kind of agrees knows that 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 tends to be how it goes i've always been very very um long-termist in my approach to everything you know career life friends that sort of thing so i think when i think of something as more of like oh yeah this would be important in the short term uh that, that that's never been as big a factor for me. So when I'm thinking about characteristics that I'm looking for, it, it is, uh, you know, in the similar vein of what I was talking about, value alignment, uh, connection, compatibility on on kind of like work topics and, and talking about, you know, uh, things we care about, uh, enjoying spending time with a the person, uh, these these sort of characteristics. Uh, looks has not played that big a factor in. But my friends would be like, oh, well, yeah, if looks have not played a big factor, why are the people you're dating, you know, so attractive? Um, but, I think there. I think that's been somewhat like random chance and somewhat just like correlations. So like you know maybe someone who's very conscientious puts some more time into their physical appearance than like the random an average person or something like this. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not in the top ten of characteristics that I that I look for. Uh, wait. So what what what
1: what are you actually saying there? Are you saying that? Are you saying that you personally just have a very low low threshold for who you would be physically attracted to? Or are you saying that you have a pretty standard threshold for who you'd be physically attracted to, but you just choose to not care so much about being physically attracted to someone who you're in a relationship with?
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think A, it started off less important than most people for me, and then B, I thought like, ugh, that's not really a trait that I like like about myself or, or value myself. Uh, so I kind of like, you know, uh, explicitly said like, I don't want to care about this, and and did start to care about it less. So I think I think okay. both have happened. Like I probably oh. started off in a in an easier state than most, and then pushed it to be even less important uh, as a characteristic. Um, How
1: do you push it? Is it is it just like introspection and just kind of trying to internalize uh, that I shouldn't care about this thing?
2: yeah so I mean, have you ever uh, heard about different techniques for, that people use for quitting smoking where you like kind of like notice that, so that there's there's this these techniques where you're kind of like doing value modification on yourself when it comes to smoking and you try to like notice the bad parts of smoking so when you're you know addicted to smoking, you think about all the other kind of good aspects, but if you really focus on like oh, this tastes awful or something, and like every time you do it eventually it starts to, like tastes quite bad and that that becomes like the salient part of the experience. Um, so I think some sort of like associative thinking and that sort of thing. So if I'm like, uh, oh, you know, uh, the, the the sort of person I want to be, uh, you know, is not someone who's who's uh, highly concerned with looks. I, I don't really like that. That's a, that's a character trait I'm, I'm not a fan of. And I think that that's a silly character trait to care about anyways, because, you know, it doesn't matter in the long term. There's there's hedonic adaption type yeah. thing, um, th- these sort of aspects. Uh, I think like telling yourself that uh, uh, makes a difference. I think uh, exposure uh, makes a difference. So I think sometimes you can think like oh, I couldn't ever date someone with X uh, and then you, you date someone and they're like, actually that was that was kind of fine. like it didn't really matter um, in practice. So some some of that sort of aspect. Um, and also, I think really explicitly about the trade-offs. So say uh, I, I don't care about looks at all. My dating pool is bigger. Um, the, the the characteristics that I can maximize on other dimensions like value compatibility is much higher. And to me, that's much more important. So in some ways, I don't even view it as like, Letting go of of looks and, and not caring about it at all, I see it as like, oh, I'm totally not willing to trade off looks for kind of any different and any of these other characteristics that I put in like higher regard. Um, so, but I, I think most people will kind of view
1: looks as like a satisfying thing of that you know their partner needs to be above some threshold of attractiveness. Are you basically saying that you have you have like reduced that threshold, you know, through like de- deliberate practice or or, or something? Or do you not see it yeah, this- as a satisfying thing? Do you see it as more of like a maximizing thing? Like if there are, you know, if, if they're, you know, if, if you think they are very unattractive, then them being like, you know, them having very aligned values can actually make up for the unattractiveness.
2: Yeah, so again, a bit of both. Like, if I think someone's personality is awesome, they they do just like look more attractive to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that does happen to to, to everybody. Yeah. But I also think that my like uh, natural bar is like low enough that it's never been a problem. So so low enough uh, that there has never been someone who are like this person would ma- match my dating criteria, but, but they are missing this true. looks component. N- nothing has uh, has has. Uh, happened there so maybe there is like some lower threshold and i just like haven't bumped into a person that, that fits this but it has not i've never had to compromise um on other things that i care about more which is a really the really important awesome. question like yeah. again if i could snap my fingers and the person's uh, super attractive like sure that's great <laughs> yeah um but i'm not willing to trade off uh, yeah say like intellectual compatibility or something like this yep. yeah yeah so I, another I, I, thing sorry yeah go on. So I was just going to say another nice thing about knowing your values and having unique values for anything is uh, it makes it it a lot easier to find what you're looking for. So if I'm looking for a house uh, on the UK market and I care not at all about natural light, uh, that's great. I can probably find a house that has really crappy natural light, but is very good on all the metrics that I do care about. If I'm looking for literally the same house as everybody else, so like, oh yeah, I'd like big natural light and new floors and this sort of thing, uh, then, then then it's a very difficult uh, world to be in. And the same is true uh, for the, the the dating market. If you're a little bit weird, it's easier to find someone who's compatible because not everyone is looking for someone who's super into effective altruism like I am. Yeah. Um, but for me, that's a really important trait. So like, great. Uh, and that works better. So I actually think um it's actually beneficial if you can find areas that you uniquely do care about or uniquely don't care about relative to just like the standard person because then you can find people
0: yeah, market inefficiencies <laughs> yeah it's like on, on on the note of like changing changing uh, changing on values/ slash desires uh, there was a point last year, I think it was last year two years ago I, I mentioned it on the podcast where I I had this exact thought process I was like, okay in this in the, in this realm of dating, I currently care way too much about looks and that care caringness about looks is not warranted. Like I, if I could take a pill and not care about looks, I would absolutely do that. I was like, okay, what can I actually do in my life to make this not the case? And I realized that uh, prior prior to this decision, I'd been, I'd been following a load of like swimsuit models on Instagram. (laughs) I was like, all right, cool. On all all of the different accounts. (laughs) Great. Okay. That's one aspect of my life in which now that's like, I am not constantly reminded that, oh my God, there are these beautiful women out there. Um, any, any other suggestions on that front? Because, like, if I could take a magic pill, like, like, genuinely, I would. I think I care way too much about looks, and this is, like, bad. Um, but it's, like, that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, desire modification. So, a few different things. Uh, one thing is you can um, find, like, replacements that get at that similar drive. So, an interesting question is, like, why do you care about looks? Is it because you really care about visual beauty and you should, you know, surround your house with artwork? Or is it because it's kind of like a high status thing to, like, date someone who's really attractive and that makes you feel kind of good in that way? I I think for
0: me it's more like the status thing. It's more like uh, I want my friends to think, like, oh, you know. Yeah, Uh,
2: and that uh, that often is a thing. So bad. Um, (laughs) Wow. But uh, then the question is, like, okay, well, now that I know that, like, this is connected to... I want my friends to, to think well of me, to think that I'm cool and, and can get a desirable partner. Um, what if I talk to my friends about what I actually desire in a person? Um, that changes things, right? So mm. all my friends know that I'm not looking for a super attractive person. They know I'm looking for someone who's super hardcore in altruism and someone who's super intelligent and that sort of thing. So from a kind of like, uh, Joey is good at maximizing his goals in finding romantic partners. Yeah. They know that my goals are aberrant and different. I, just like they would look up my house with no natural light, and they wouldn't be like, "Oh, you got screwed." They'd be like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, yeah, you don't, you don't care about natural light. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you found a good house." Except, of course, I wouldn't rent it because natural light. Um, so, I think that sort of thing can be helpful. if you can like decouple uh, th- these kind of like mixed up drives and think that like, oh yeah, uh, that. The other thing that I would that I would add here is people tend to think that people. Uh, like people tend to weigh overweight uh, this sort of thing in terms of how much other people care <laughs> um, so that's a good thing to, to realize too like uh, we are each the center of our own universes right so we, we think that like each of our actions are like really really impactful and like our friends totally remember this and think about this and just like everyone else has like other things yeah. going on in their life yeah. right so yeah um, i think uh yeah letting go of, of that a little bit your friends probably already think you're cool they they probably don't need like you know you'd have a supermodel to like continue to think you're cool uh you've probably you've probably already won that battle uh to to a large extent so i don't know you I know think, that's maybe an aspect i too. think i think you're kind of on the fence right now
1: you need to, you need to score a few more points well, I, I, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah right on the edge yeah double yeah. my subscriber count and, and then i'll be fine <laughs> K- kudos for coming out and like admitting to that on the podcast uh, i think that, <laughs> was that was that easy i mean i i think yeah you seem pretty happy with just uh kind of being pretty open about these
0: things yeah mate like i in a way i i mean there's an there's an element of like honestly i i, I think so many other people think like this and i do get a bit of a kick in sort of saying saying the thing yeah. out loud that, that <laughs> yeah. i feel other people are thinking that on that they're not saying and it yeah. adds to my thing of that one of the things that i know that i value is like transparency and honesty and stuff in, in most things that i do and so it like ties it ties into that um
2: Another thing on the desire modification in terms of like getting experience, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so the the kind of we talked about the, the spreadsheet like not working for someone's dating, and it's because they they were like incorrect about one of the parameters. I think people are incorrect about their their parameters all the time. So if there's a parameter that you kind of want to be incorrect on, check it. Like can you know if if your bar is a can you go on a date with someone who's like a little bit below A and Mm. they're really compatible on every other way? Mm. Probably you will find, oh, actually the bar wasn't strictly this. I'm actually like pretty happy with, with how this is going. So (laughs) that's another thing that you can do. You can kind of like on a macro side say like, this is a value I don't really want. I'm going to try compromising on this and and try experimenting with people who are a bit below this value. Mm. And this is a value I really do want. So I'm going to hold it quite fixed. So maybe for me, it's like my, uh, I, I, need to, to be in a relationship with someone ethical. I'm, I'm not really going to change that. That's going to be a kind of high value. Uh, I don't want to experiment with dating someone less ethical because I don't want to date someone less ethical. That that's not mm. the, the the plan. Um, but looks, maybe I'm okay dating someone, uh, or trying to date someone less attractive and maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe it turns out that that, that bar is like quite fixed around that level. But often I think people are, um, so if if you're if you're putting in a spreadsheet, I think people have elimination criteria like if someone falls below a five on each of these traits, uh, they're gone. Where I actually think social relationships are more like multiplicative. Uh, so if someone scores quite low on A, but they're really good on all these other things, the relationship can still work quite well. Um, so if that is a model, uh, sometimes experimentation can kind of like reveal that that like yeah, if they're they're good enough on these other characteristics, then then the bar for this one isn't quite as uh, steep.
1: Okay, I've got a question. Um, so. Wait, sorry, just just to stick on that same note before we move on. I think there's also a danger of you bullshitting yourself. I think that what might be also partly going on is that uh, it, it makes decision-making a lot easier if you have this very easy disqualification criteria where if they're not basically a supermodel, then, well, you know, I'm not attracted to them, you know, uh, therefore I'm not going to date this person. It makes it very easy to not put in, you know, it, it takes sort of effort and work to meet people and build relationships and stuff. You know, it, it, if, if you tell yourself, well, you know, um they're not they're not a supermodel. therefore i won't go on date with them it makes your life easier you know it's easier to kind of sit in your room play world of warcraft make youtube videos um and and say oh man i've got it so hard i just need i need someone i just need someone really attractive man (laughs) that's what's holding me back (laughs) um like it's almost i mean it's it's not dignified but it's (laughs) it's almost dignified to, to be able to say that oh that's the the limiting factor is that i just you know I have such a high bar.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of people who are uh, uh, fearful of going on dates who say they're picky. I think that is uh, like outside view. That's a thing that happens that, that a lot of people mm. say. So, yeah. Okay. So, um, I so the, the
0: the things that I've tried to do to combat this is um, I sort of set a bar for myself where it's like if I'm if if for example I'm I'm I match with someone on Hinge, uh, then I will. This was all like like like, like pre lockdown. But the thing I the thing I was saying in my head, which again feels, feels stupid to admit out loud. But it's like, as long as I think, oh, she's kind of cute, then I will be more than happy to go on at least one date with her. And then after after I did did this a couple of times, it was it was it was that issue of like, okay, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to feel at the end of a first date. And it's like, okay, so you know, how do you decide whether this warrants like a second date? And it's like, well, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to feel on second, and 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 so after speaking to a few a few friends about this, I. They were like, well, you know, every every everyone's always a little bit kind of nervous on the first day, and like second date maybe. So maybe like you know, setting a three date rule, whereby if you're talking to someone and you know, think things were all right, like all right is is the bar to decide whether to go on a second or, or a third date with them, and then and then you figure it out. But then like the the issue that I'm actually uh, sort of uh, that I, that I was running into is like at each of these intervals, how like what are you what are you supposed to be feeling as like the bar for for continuing? Because there are friends of mine who are in relationships where it felt it was like, Oh, from date one, I just knew. And I was like, Okay, great. Well, that's great for you. But I'm, <laughs> outside, of, outside of one time when I was 18, I've never had that feeling of Oh, my God, I just knew. And it's like, then at that point, it becomes a, you know, do I like, what, what's, what's the feeling here? And which, which for me is always just a little bit like, I don't really know. Versus, what's the sort of the the logical thought process here? I.e., you know, we match on values and we enjoy spending time with one another, and therefore, this should this should, this should continue into like a exclusive relationship or or something like that. What, Joey? I, I'm I'm curious. Like, what's what's your heuristic for? Do I like this yeah. enough to warrant to to continue this relationship?
2: I I, I might sound like a broken record, but I, I do think a lot of it comes down to like meta self awareness. So, for instance. I think a lot of people get infatuated uh, very quickly. So they'll go on a date, they'll be like, wow, this person's like uh, 15 out of 10, uh, I am 110% sold. Hmm. Uh, And for that sort of person, I mean, if they have uh, felt that rush with like half of first dates they go on, um, you know, probably the other half. You, you don't go on a second date because that that feeling is happening pretty often. You're you're, you're hitting that 15. Mm. Uh, for me, I don't really get infatuation. I kind of have like a, a negative prior about someone, and then I get like a, a slow yeah. like positive <laughs> update. So I tend to like people more. I tend to like people more the more I get to know them, um, which is great uh, because it doesn't mean I get to that 15 to make all sorts of crazy decisions. I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, okay, I like this person a little bit more. I like this person a little bit more, and then that kind of like you know uh, escalates over time. So. I think that's the kind of question you have to ask yourself. And I might exclude the first data point because the first voice you is is very weird and, and, and quite strange. But if you're generally not getting a rush, period, uh, you just might not be that sort of person. You, you just might not be the sort of person who, who gets that huge escalation. So it's more like, is this in the top 10% of dates I've been on? Maybe it's worth the second date then. Um, you know, is, is that second date in the top 25% of second dates I've been on? Maybe it's worth a third date or something like that. Uh, I would say... Uh, For me, the first three dates are very much just getting a sense of the person and getting to know them. And I I really like coffee dates and talking to people and kind of like heavy amounts of social interaction because, of course, I like talking uh, in general. Um, And then uh, it tends to to move more towards like, okay, what what do you think, like after the three dates, like what's the long-term trajectory of this? We should talk about what we're we're interested in in this sort of aspect. Uh, But yeah, I wouldn't let it stop you. I, I think People have perhaps this like overly Hollywood romanticized notion that like, you know, you're going to like look at someone and be like, oh my God. Um, and of course, if you're looking at someone, unless like holding like a protest sign or something like that, all you know is their aesthetics, uh, which is already like not a very good long-term predictor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's what I would, that's what I'd do. Like, am I more excited with this date than I have been with many of my other dates? Uh, or, or am I not? Uh, not like a kind of cross comparable with other humans uh, reference class of like, you know, some people are just more excitable. Interesting. Yeah, because like
0: a lot of friends have said to me that, well, if you're if you're in this position kind of three dates later where you're still not sure, then the fact that you're not sure is your answer. And, you know, you don't want to sort of necessarily get into a relationship or, you know, whatever with someone that you're not sure about. Therefore, you should be sure after X number of hangouts with this person uh, as to whether you want to pursue this. And I've never... I don't never know. Some, some people right are before. never sure. <laughs>
2: so. Some people are never sure. Like, you know, there, there's there's always some... I think when I talk to rationalists about this in particular, they're, like, aware of statistics, right? So, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce and, you know, most relationships aren't super long-term and, and that sort of thing. So I think sometimes that's in the back of the head even if you're like, yeah, this feels like it's going very well, but, like, I'm aware that, you know, this this sort of thing, uh, you know, if it feels like it's going to last forever, most of the time it's not. So, like, you could distrust that feeling. So. Yeah, I I don't think you need to be sure to to go on a date with another person. I think it's about how it how it has felt relative to other similar situations. um, And then, you know, try to uh, benchmark off of that.
0: Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Thank you for the (laughs) for the wisdom of this topic. This is actually very, very helpful stuff.
2: Um, Yeah, I think one weird thing about dating is a bit like happiness. It is one of those things where if you like try to grasp at it, it, it can it can move further away. Um, a model I heard on this is you just want to meet a lot of people generally, not just in romantic context, but period, uh, and then like very much be a, a version of your best self, and that's kind of like the recipe to find someone. And I think that's like pretty good. I, I do think you can be more analytical about it, and you know, online dating has this power of just being able to look through like thousands and thousands of people really quickly, which is cool. Uh, but I do think if there was like if there was like two soft heuristics, it would be like. Uh, make yourself the person that you would want the person to, to date, uh, kind of thing, and and just uh, interact with and, and meet just a ton of people, especially a ton of people who are kind of in the reference class of, of people you'd consider dating. So you know, if it was me meeting a lot of people who care about ethics, uh, you know, that's going to be a good way to meet someone who's eventually going to be a really good long term partner.
0: Nice, very good advice. Um, one one other thing that, that that I'd written down that I'm I'm curious if you've that I'm I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this is, have you found any sort of uh, sort of like quick and easy happiness hacks for your life like things that uh, surprised you in terms of oh this thing surprisingly makes me more happy and it's actually not that much, that effortful and more people should do this thing
2: ah uh, yeah i have a bunch um, that the, the first one is tracking your happiness is super important um, because if you don't track it, then of course you cannot do an experiment and see if it in fact makes you happier. I think people think they kind of can, but they totally can't. It's it's very hard to know how happy you are day to day. You tend to think whatever you're feeling at that minute is how you felt for a really long time. And then you look at that and you're like, wait a second, I'm feeling bad right now, but I felt great all this week. So it's like the first step. Like how, if you're tracking, how, how do you I, I track that? my happiness every day. Yeah, so uh, my daily tracking routine looks something like Uh, I have a a happiness score, I have a productivity score, and then I have some hypothesis that I'm testing. Uh, So maybe I'm testing, uh, I don't know, waking up earlier in the morning or something like this, and I wanna see what does it do. So I'll I'll, uh, do that, and I I actually tend to do like a one week experiment, and then if it works, I'll, I'll do it later in a one month experiment and see if it works on a longer time span. Um, And if kind of the the results are looking good, and it's not statistically significant because you're not getting enough data points, you know, you're getting like seven versus seven, and then you're getting like 30 versus 30 or something like this. But if it it looks like it's having positive effects uh, on those kind of numbers, the productivity or happiness number, uh, that's a kind of positive indicator. And I would say some things are like pretty surprising. Like I've had friends who've done this and found like quite weird things like oh, I need socialization first thing in the morning. Or, oh, it really makes a difference if I sleep nine hours instead of eight. Like, that's one thing I found. I'm a long sleeper. I hate being a long sleeper. I'd get so much more done if I didn't sleep a long time. But my happiness and productivity and creativity tank um, if I don't get really large numbers of hours of sleep. And that's like a good thing to know. Again, better to be aware than unaware and just like kind of chronically tired all the time. So yeah, measuring uh, that sort of thing.
0: And and then on on, on that note, what is your, like, What's a zero and what's a ten on your happiness scale, for example? Like, how do you know what number you're at?
2: Yeah, I'm one of those irritating people that like never puts a ten ever, almost. Um, so, uh, I'll tell you a ten when I when I figure it out. Um, but some, something along the lines of like the best day I've ever had and and the, the the worst day I've ever had, or maybe maybe I wouldn't even put a one for the worst day I've ever had, but the worst day that's like conceivably reasonable to imagine. In practice, I would say my ratings tend to fluctuate between like a five and a nine. Um, so I don't end up putting like very, very, very low ratings or very, very high ratings. Probably I should like uh, dynamic range that out a little bit, um, uh, to get, uh, kind of more, uh, nuance, but I, I find that that tends to work well enough and I just put decimal places if I have to.
0: Okay. And do you just decide at the end of the day, like how happy generally was I today? Or do you fulfill like the editor questionnaire or whatever, like what's your method for this?
2: yeah it's slacker slacker method just one number at the end of the day um i do try to do like a quick day recreation uh, idea because uh, that that helps you be a little bit like what happened today this 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 okay yeah i think this was my average happiness rating um i think you can get more precision but depending on what level of experiments you're doing like day-to-day precision is is pretty useful um and i'm not experimenting with things that are like done in an hour very often it's normally over days and weeks and that sort of thing Um, So that's one happiness thing, uh, second happiness hack, once you've measured stuff, what, once you're measuring stuff, things that will come up for almost everybody, uh, people chronically undervalue friendship, um, time spent with friends is like ridiculously predictive and, uh, uh, people just, people just don't, don't do it right. Like Mm -hmm. you hear people moving to a different city for jobs all the time. You hear people moving to a different city for romantic partners all the time. You almost never hear of someone moving for a friend group, um, from a happiness perspective, that friend group is like more important than the job or the the romantic relationship. So I think in general, prioritizing friends, uh, valuing friendship, making time for it, that sort of thing, uh, super, super valuable. Um, I, uh, yeah. When, when I think about cities, so obviously I think about cities mostly from a helpfulness perspective, what's, where's charity entrepreneurship be the best. But when I think of it from a personal perspective, it is all about the people. Uh, almost everything else is like a rounding error. Like, okay, London's water is kind of crappy. Vancouver's water is kind of good. Who cares? Um, it, it's mostly about the, the, the quality of social interactions that, that you can get there. So I think that is super neglected by people. Um, Learning some sort of stoicism and some sort of like letting go type techniques, uh, I think are very very valuable. And I think people sometimes put this on like a false dichotomy where it's like you're either like perfectly stoic or you're 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 normal. And I think just moving yourself a little bit up on the spectrum so you can just uh, let go of some things uh, that can be very very useful. Um, yeah, I'm looking at my, my happiness pillars that I came up with. So I actually have nine pillars of of sub goals that, that relate to my happiness. Friends we talked about, letting go we talked about, partnering with best friend we talked about. That's one of my, those are my three in social relations. Uh, focusing on experience, lots of uh, evidence suggesting this. So creating some sort of novelty in your life. And this is funny from a guy who structures his meals the same every single week, but I don't create novelty in food. I create novelty in experience. So I try to do one thing that's kind of like novel every every Sunday or something like that. Uh, creating calm, creating flow, both those are, are really good if you have uh, little interjections of them uh, throughout the day. Uh, and then attitude, so optimism, antifragility, fragility and uh, cultivating 90-10 on most goals uh, are all things that I think correlate quite nicely to this uh, attitudinal benefit and, and creating more happiness.
0: Sorry, and uh, 90-10 meaning you'll do it 90% of the time and you'll forget about it 10% of the time? Uh,
2: basically, uh, being that the, that I'm setting more things to satisfy some goals. Um, so, uh, not trying to maximize health, just trying to be like, yeah, this is good enough for for health and, and that sort of thing. Uh, that does tend to be a good strategy for happiness: is more satisfying goals, less maximizing ones. It sounds like you've really got it all figured out. Does it? Does it feel that? Does it feel that way internally for you? Ah, uh, I mean, so there's a very big difference between having this all on a Google Doc and consistently exactly, this. exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have it color coded um, for <laughs> how well I'm doing on each of these goals, right? So, uh, you know uh i'm in a really good relationship so that that partner's one uh, might be like green uh but friends you're some of my closest contacts prioritize them i haven't like done a great job on that um so that's that's like a red red bar uh, i've only been okay on that so well, i would say are you, con-
1: are, you, are, you, are, you, are you sort of implicitly shitting on your friends right now <laughs>
2: No, it's it's some some of this to do with circumstance. So I okay. did move to from Vancouver to London, so I lost a bunch of oh, contacts see. there, yeah, and yeah, then of yeah. course London had the pandemic. So yeah, some of hard. this is like out of my control. Okay. Um, but but some of this is just um, I've just been busy, so it's been it's been hard to, to find the time to, to do as much friendship prioritization as, as I would like to do. I think if I was an optimal agent, I would do a little bit more of that. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, what are these? I probably have like a third in green, a third in yellow, and a third in red. So I'm I'm not okay. I'm not maximizing all these goals some are easier than others you know yeah. it's easier to sleep the right amount of hours than it is to exercise the exact amount that i want you know so some some goals are are easier than others yeah nice yeah Yep. Yeah. yeah i wonder wonder what what which one of these ones are forgotten a lot um i think one thing that i've changed my values on quite a bit is the important of the importance of cultivating atmospheres so i used to think atmospheres are kind of silly like I'm sure I can just be happy in any place or be Mm -hmm. calm in any place and 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 that sort of thing and and then I thought okay why am I like forcing myself to, to to be calm in a not calm room when I could buy like a $10 light bulb that makes it a lot more calm so I think sometimes uh sometimes you want to work with your irrationality if it's easier to kind of like solve the environment than solve your your mental thing so for instance with creating calm uh, creating calm space, I have a nice little place that's like lit by soft orange fairy lights, and and kind of like uh, immediately activates like a calming mentality and uh, that sort of thing. So I think sometimes people don't like maybe it seems a little bit cheesy or something to like theme a room or theme a corner in a certain way, but I think if it cultivates an attitude in yourself that you want to cultivate more, uh, that that's often worth the the investment. Yeah, this this is something that I I I sort of really side dosing as well
1: because I think I think like I'm just inherently very sensitive to how things are designed and kind of the the sort of you know aesthetic beauty around me and i think it's you know i think it's kind of stupid and so i'll be like well no i, sh- I should be able to be like perfectly productive <laughs> you know <laughs> sitting on the sofa <laughs> in a messy room versus you know <laughs> or whatever but like it just makes such a huge difference that yeah now I'm, I'm much more happy to give into it and say okay look i, I, I need a nice place
2: <laughs> yeah well it's, it's about which one's easier to, to change yeah right? yeah so i don't know if you're frustrated that the sun's in the sky like that's a pretty <laughs> difficult thing to change you're probably gonna have to change your own brain on that if you're frustrated that like your your light is really white and makes everything look kind of bad like that's yeah. actually pretty easy to change. Um, you should probably just change the light bulb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> digging into your
1: psychology. Uh, all right, cool. I actually have to head off, guys. Um, but don't, don't uh, stop uh, stop you guys from continuing, um, Joey. It's been great to great to meet you uh, virtually. We should yeah. definitely hang out uh, once it's uh, legal.
2: Yes, I agree. I miss miss three D humans. Uh, yeah. but two Ds are as, <laughs> as good human. as we can get for now. <laughs> <laughs> two two is <2D's> pretty great. <laughs> all right, see you. Guys. Yeah, I mean, it it beats the heck out of uh, out of nothing. Cool. Bye. Uh, so, Joey, while we put,
0: uh, have, you, have you, have you got a few more minutes? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Um, so, one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about. So, uh, as, essentially, I, I, I wonder if I can talk you through my sort of rough first draft thesis for my book, and you can kind of suggest things.
2: I would uh, I would love to do that. Perfect.
0: Okay, cool. So, uh, one way that we're we're approaching it now is imagining this. This okay. So, we all want to be successful, whatever success means to us. Um, generally that that involves doing the things that we want to have done so lots of us want to have written a book lots of us want to have taken our friendships more seriously but it's actually like like doing the thing itself that that, that yeah, that's of the goal accomplishment
2: yeah
0: yeah and so especially given that that we live in an age of distraction where we've got Netflix we've got our phones and uh, especially because usually the things that the these things that we need to do that we want to have done usually involve some level of work and sort of some level of energy investment, and even, even sometimes it might just be really, really boring, um, we often default to doing the easy thing rather than doing doing the hard thing. Now, some some authors will, will will tell you that the solution to this problem is to throw away your phone. They will say, if you throw away your phone, you'll become a digital minimalist, you'll become indestructible, you'll suddenly magically be able to get things done. Um, but if you actually talk to people who are, quote, successful, productive, happy, uh, yes, there's there's an extent to which, you know, they, they, they sort of <laughs> throw away their phone. But most people in that position have actually f- found a way to enjoy the things that they're doing uh, to make it far more likely that they'll actually do them. You don't often hear people say that, you know, the, the journey was was suffering and the end goal was worth it. And when you do, like someone like Muhammad Ali says, like, you know, 10 years of suffering for that, holding up that trophy. We pro- like most of us probably wouldn't want that particular lifestyle where it's like actually 10 years of suffering to get to the trophy. And so whenever people ask me, like, Ali, how are you so productive? You do A, B, C, D, and E, you know, uh, how, how do you do it the real answer is not something to, is is not that i've thrown away my phone and the, the the real answer isn't that i've got the perfect to-do list management system it's that i just find a I, I pick stuff that i enjoy doing and b i find ways to enjoy the things that i'm doing even if they're not inherently fun and so the thesis for the book is that this book is a practical guide on how to make the things that you're doing more fun so that you actually are more likely to do them cool how Very cool. how does that sound As like sort of a top level summary
2: yeah, conceptually sounds very good. Um, I I do think that a lot of people imagine productivity is like like pounding through the wall, working through it. And I do think uh, you have to be a lot more clever than that. Like it's it's more about uh, designing designing it uh, to be yeah fun, designing it to be easy, designing it to be to be the default. So I'm I'm sympathetic to this. Uh, all the productive people I know own phones. Uh, you know, <laughs> they they do have strategies to, to maybe control the amount of time that they spend there or that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think. I think uh, an interesting analogy here is I, I had a friend, um, and me and my friend were both like, hey, we want to be more productive. Uh, and uh, we were like, maybe we should quit video games, because we are both playing video games at the time. And this was when we were quite, quite young in high school, or something like this. And uh, I quit video games, and the next funnest thing was the work that I was uh, aiming to do, because I was doing charity work. I, I really liked it. Uh, he quit video games, and the next funnest thing was Netflix. Um, And then he quit Netflix. And the next funnest thing was scrolling through social media. So that's, that's, for some people, I think there's like 25 things ahead of that productive thing that you need to do. And it's very hard then to just like cut out all 25 things that beat it. But for other people, say like writing a book or or whatever is like pretty high up on your list, Uh, then maybe you can get some benefits from kind of like, uh, yeah, putting the phone uh, out of arm's reach. Okay, cool. Um, And then
0: in in, in terms of sort of practical ways to make things fun uh you know there's the the standard approach of like gamification and short feedback loops and making something sufficiently challenging so that you're more likely to get into flow state and having some level of autonomy or ownership over the thing that you're doing in whatever way that might be to which makes it more fun uh there's things like having a meaningful destination like working towards something that feels purposeful because you know if ultimately if the thing you're doing is actually meaningless then it's there's only so much dopamine hacking (laughs) that you can do to, to make it more fun things like incorporating a social element into it to sort of get that if like doing doing something with friends is generally more fun than doing it on your own um, so thinking about like things like environment design uh like like for me working at a clean desk is <laughs> twice as fun as working on a dirty desk and so just like recognizing okay cool let's get in the desk or even things like when i was studying for exams like you know going to a different library each day it's like I add some novelty some variety to the otherwise the monotonous thing of st- st- studying for exams um Are there any other sort of broad categories slash examples that come to your mind of things, practical things that we can do to make what might look like work and boring on the surface actually feel more enjoyable?
2: Yeah. um, Again, on the kind of psychology, uh, kind of uh, convincing yourself mindset, I do just think identifying as someone who finds X fun uh, makes it it more fun. Interesting. So if you're like, I am a writer, I enjoy writing. Uh, and you, you describe that in social situations, I actually do find you enjoy writing more because your brain is like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. I am, I am a writer. I enjoy writing. That's, that's, that's a thing. That, that's what's going on. Um, so that's that's quite a weird one. Um, associative stuff. So you mentioned going to the library. Um, I think you can do that even more. I, I know a friend who, like, would keep a bowl of candies on their desk, and if they did, like, a particularly creative idea, they'd just, like, take a candy, and it's kind of like they're, they're operantly conditioning themselves uh, to uh, like creative ideas or to get some intrinsic enjoyment out of that. Nice. Yeah, I wonder what else comes to mind in terms of ways of designing your system. Um, mm -hmm -hmm. Um, So one thing we talked about is upfront energy uh, to experiment and and find the right thing. I think a lot of the time uh, you can uh, do this. Uh, So for instance, say you drive to work. Okay. Um, now, there's a lot of different ways to get to work. And it is probably not going to be that fun to test out 20 different ways. Mm. Uh, but it might be quite fun once you find the way that is actually fun. So you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to try taking the bus. Nope, I don't like the bus. I'm going to try walking. It eh, takes too long. Oh, well, I'm going to try electric scooter. Oh, actually, I really like electric scooter. That's super cool. Um, so I think if you can tell yourself, like, I don't need willpower forever. I just need willpower to experiment. And if you find joy in experimenting even better, then you're really sad um and then you find the activity that is going to be reoccurring. Physical activity is another good example of this. Use your willpower to try 10 different things. Don't use your willpower to go to something you hate 10 times. Um and then hopefully you find one that can kind of like slot into, oh, I actually like doing team sports um or whatever that thing is and then it kind of like perpetuates itself. Hmm. Sick. And and and
0: speaking of speaking of willpower, like we have there's this there's this phenomenon that often Even if we like something, even if we enjoy it, there's like still some level of friction, some level of activation energy that we need to do to do the thing. Um, And and like a a colorful example is that most people would say that they enjoy sex, but often it's like, oh, the amount of activation energy energy is just—it almost makes it not worth it. So, any any thoughts on how, like, if we've decided we want to do something, we can then bring ourselves to get started with doing the thing because often kind of getting started is the hardest part and once you're doing it it's like okay this is actually quite fun
2: yeah well you've probably heard the brush one teeth uh brush one tooth uh concept uh and th- the idea of that is basically just yeah d- telling yourself you only have to do the absolute minimum uh, sort of thing i do that all the time i have a 10 minute workout it's pretty intense um i tell myself if i get through the first 30 seconds then i can stop but I, I almost never do um i would say nine times out of ten i finish the whole workout once i've done you know the, the first set of push-ups or whatever um so, that's one thing. The other thing is associative. So, um, I, uh, like caffeine. Uh, I like caffeine. I like Diet Coke. That's how my caffeine injection source at the moment. Um, I tell myself, if I get up to do a Diet Coke, then I, to get a Diet Coke, then I have to do that, the 10-minute workout. So, I've kind of tied them together. So, when I get up, I'm not getting up to do my 10-minute workout. I'm getting up to get the Coke. And then, I'm, now I'm standing, might as well do the 10-minute workout. So, Sometimes uh, cushioning it at the beginning or end with like a, a little a little uh, and positive inflection point can, uh, can be a way to kind of like surround that sort of thing. And if you tie it like, oh, I only ever have Coke when I do my workout, uh, then it could be net worthwhile. And then in terms of activation, also if you do get rid of the, the default activation and make uh, something else the, the default activation. So one thing I have done, uh, n- not now because it's weird in COVID, but I do often leave my computer uh, at the office because I find if I bring my computer home, the default action is something on the computer, and I don't want to spend as much time on the computer. Mm. And if I leave it at the office, technically, I can do stuff on my phone. But using my phone drives me nuts. It's a tiny screen. It's really crappy. Um, so I tend to read a lot more books. And that is actually happier, even if the energy to go and find a book and be like, oh, do I actually want to read this book, is uh, more intensive. So that's that's another thing. If you, if you if that, that works very well if there's one thing between you and the, the goal that you want to do. It doesn't work that well if, yeah, it's like 25th down on the list, because then you have to remove a, a heck of a lot of things sweet
0: thank you this has been very helpful
2: and um wonder what else can you make fun oh yeah actually i have an, another one they can make fun i think sometimes uh, purchases can help uh so for instance i noticed that i was doing some little drawings uh and i was like yeah i kind of like doing these drawings but i hate that i always have to find some paper and the paper's on the other side of the house and this sort of thing so i bought like a stupid little notebook i actually have it like right here like uh five pound notebook from amazon and i just Like writing in the notebook, it it feels nicer than doing that. And again, could I hack my brain to to, to treat normal paper the same way as the notebook? Like, yeah, probably. But it's a lot easier just to buy a $5 motivational thing. I think sometimes people go too far in this where they buy like, you know, huge expensive home gym sets. But if there's a purchase for under £10 that will make the activation feel a lot smoother than buying that.
0: Nice. Yeah, I very much use use that as well, where like, you know, just having having a nice notebook to write on makes me far more likely to write in it. And I, yeah. want, I want to write in it. Therefore, I, I do the thing.
2: It seems so ridiculous that our brain is that hackable, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> better better to know that it is. And use it to your advantage and that sort of thing. Yeah, I find, I find this applies to certain apps as well. Like the
0: app uh, Notion is very just pleasurable to use when it's not really slow with like emojis and colors. And I'm like, oh, I'm more likely to spend time in here. And this is where I do my work planning out videos. So the fact that it's pretty makes me more likely to want to do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, no, let's let's just go with that.
2: Yeah, putting environmental change stuff. Uh, actually, so one thing we haven't talked about at all is uh, symbolism. I think symbolism can be like quite useful. Okay. Um, so, for example, uh, for the um, the laptop thing, I want to leave the laptop at work, but it's it's kind of uh, hard to leave the laptop at work. And I'm like, oh, uh. so I have this little elephant here, which I got uh, from Malawi when visiting Lucia. Actually. Uh, and uh, I put it on top of my laptop as kind of like a guard of the laptop. Uh, and again, it's like a small physical object, but it basically reminds me like, oh yes, it is my like wiser elephant self that does not want me to take this laptop home. Oh. Uh, and it's a deliberate symbol for, for that exact purpose. Uh, and that's why it's an elephant versus any other animal. And I think sometimes you can uh, tie this symbolism into things uh, that, that uh, yeah, make it feel more motivational or, or fun or, or this sort of thing. If you uh, make it more like, you know, the sort of person that I want to be would, would do this. Hmm. I picked a spirit animal for that very reason. I, 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 It's a very funny sort of thing to do, but I, I figured, and I think that it has been true, that by picking one, I kind of like aspirationally move in that direction a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same goes for a person. Like if you have a, a person you think of very well and you're like, what would X person do in that situation? That like, hmm. kind of like set your brain on the right track.
0: Yeah, so on this, on this note of sort of like making the stuff that we do more 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 enjoyable, one... One sort of category of criticism that i'm trying to trying to think about is, yeah, well, not everything can be fun one hundred percent of the time to which my current response is, yeah, I agree, sometimes we do have to use willpower um like my my model for this is generally if 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 something is fun, we generally don't need to use willpower to do it like most of us don't need willpower to watch Netflix, but we need willpower to do the thing to do something that feels hard or is just less fun, um like doing the workout, for example uh and Sure, some of the time we, we actually have to use a willpower, but it, it would be nice if, if, we, if we could hack our brains into enjoying this thing more by doing all these different different techniques such that maybe only in 10% of cases we actually had to grit it you know, and make ourselves do it. Does that broadly resonate or any other ways that you think about this?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, there's been a lot of debate about whether willpower is like a muscle and you can like get better at willpower or whether it just gets fatigued and that's how it's like a muscle and it's not like a muscle in terms of you can actually build it up. Uh, systems systems tend to beat willpower. Uh, you know, will, Willpower is soft and 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 uh, inconsistent and will work for you sometimes in, in other ways. I think using willpower to initially set up systems is like a, a better, better success strategy. And yeah can you make everything fun no um but can you make everything funner or more fun uh yes you, you definitely can um you know even if it's like like say i hate doing dishes which i which i do um can i listen to my favorite podcast only when i'm doing dishes and now it's like kind of fun and like yeah of course i could listen to that podcast uh, lying down on bed and that would be much more fun but uh, if i've kind of like tied them together they're they're, they're close enough that the action on aggregate is uh, is fairly enjoyable
0: hmm i like that can you make everything fun? No, but you can make everything more fun.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's it's about about functioning in life and and this sort of thing. Um yeah, if you, you kind of set it up Set it up to be there. One thing that people don't think about with fun stuff, actually, uh, this is kind of like a social answer. Um, sometimes you can trade uh, tasks with people, and there's like win-win trades out there. I think a lot more often than people think. Mm. Uh, so people just naturally, when they're like part of a family, like you know, the kids might do A, the the the, the parents might do B and C. But I actually think this can happen even with, like roommates, like for instance. Uh, I find cleaning kitchens like particularly gross because I have different food sensitivities and don't like it. Um, and I have more tolerance for cleaning bathrooms. Weird. I don't know why that that is the way it is. Uh, so whenever I have a roommate, I'm like, hey, what's your, what's your view on how much you like cleaning kitchens versus bathrooms? I'm happy to make that trade if, if you are. And I think that sometimes with something that is just unfunnable, you just can't move it around. Sometimes you can trade it with something that you can make fun. Um, so maybe you do really like your podcast with dishes. You actually don't mind twice as much dishes. Who cares? Because you're really into your podcast. Uh, but you can't listen to a podcast while vacuuming because it's too loud. Yeah. So you know there, there are other people with other optimization algorithms, and that makes life a heck of a lot easier if you have a bit of flex to, to kind of trade tasks around. Nice. Is
0: is there anything you found helpful on the so on the on the on the dishes front? Some people would say that hey, you know, listening to a podcast makes makes dishes more fun. I'm I'm broadly in that camp, but then other people would say that being so mindful about doing the dishes that you're fully focused on the task at hand and you're fully present that actually makes dishes more fun than being than distracting yourself by listening to a podcast um my theory on this is you know try both see which one works for you i prefer the podcast personally but hey sure if you if you get mindful joy out of washing the dishes then you know more power to you
2: yeah, I think some people do. I think some people like this. Sometimes I think this is a post hoc rationalization to to like why they haven't set up a podcast um, or the, this sort of thing. It's like almost like the activation energy for setting up a system that's better. They're like, oh no, but I kind of like this. Um, I, I like the trying both. I think if you try both, uh, like can't can't hurt to try more systems and then implement the systems that work so that they're more default and more consistent. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I, I think in general, like happiness experiments and productivity experiments and, and these sort of things, just like trying out a lot of stuff and doing it more if it seems to be working, is like way underutilized uh, in the world. Yeah, definitely. It's like like right now, <laughs> it, it,
0: it's 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 only because you mentioned the happiness thing that I've that I've noticed it. It's like last night I got like five hours of sleep, and currently there is like a haze and like sort of front front of my head, and it's like. I'm enjoying this conversation, but I would I would enjoy this conversation more if I had not been stupid and stayed up till four o'clock in the morning reading a book, which I actually could have just read tonight instead. So, <laughs> so like recognizing that and then telling myself that no, <laughs> as as good as this autobiography of Andre Agassiz is, like you can, it will, it will still <laughs> it is gonna be there tomorrow. tomorrow.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's that's a big problem. I mean, one of the the constant challenges we deal with, right, is. Uh, we care about our current selves much more than our future selves. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of like, awesome. yeah, that, that's a problem for tomorrow, Joey. Like, screw that guy. Um, yeah. I'm going to gonna leave him with dirty dishes or that sort of thing. But of course, yeah. when you're tomorrow, you care about yourself uh, as much. So I actually think trying to, like, steep, like uh, curve off that a little bit so that you care about an hour of your time a week from now as much as you care about an hour of your time now makes life so much easier. And what it normally results in is you doing uh, really heavy duty upfront time on a bunch of things. Um, but then your life is just super easy, right? So you've like, you've tried all the different things, you've done all the analysis, and then you're just doing this really awesome default thing, uh, all the time. Uh, and I think that, yeah, if there was like a, a meta hack, uh, outside of measuring your stuff and, and experimenting with stuff, uh, if you can find ways to kind of like level your, your perception of your own value of time a little bit more, uh, wow, that makes, that makes a huge difference. And I think that is how you get ahead of the game. Like, part of why I have so many things figured out is I just took the time to do it really well once up front. And now I can kind of ride that for a long time. Like, I don't have to reevaluate. Uh, oh, God, how do I make myself healthier? Like, people, some people think about how they make themselves healthy, healthier, like, every single week. And I don't, because I did it really thoroughly, thoughtfully once, looked up a whole bunch of research, and now I have it right here. Cool. Sleep, eight plus hours. Um, it's right on the, the the three pillars. Nice. Yeah, I think that this uh, up front
0: upfront making the choice applies to so much other stuff as well um at the, at the moment we're we're wrapping up a live cohort of my part-time youtuber academy uh where you know the, the real aim is to tell people that like if you want to succeed on youtube the only habit you have to build is just being able to consistently put out one video a week and um you know that's a real struggle for a lot of people especially with day jobs and, and things like that um but often it's like it, like an enormous amount of willpower goes into the decision to start and then once you once you start and you commit that all right i have decided to take youtube seriously i've decided to spend three thousand pounds on camera gear this means that for the next two years i'm going to put out a video a week and it's not an option therefore i don't even need to think about it it's just it's like going to work you just do it whether or not you feel like it it's is is not an option it's just it's just how you do it
2: yeah well in some ways uh, deciding thoroughly upfront takes away the amount of time you're spending on decisions like it sounds funny because you're like oh you know you have the most analytical freaking food spreadsheet i've ever seen but yet i probably spend less time over the course of a year thinking about food than almost anyone mm. i just spent it all at the very beginning <laughs> and then kind of rode rode off that for right. a really long time yeah so yeah i think i think that's an optimized one thing that i do think though is again kind of like working with your mental weaknesses if you know you have this like uh dilapidated view of your, your future selves you, you can set yourself up uh for that so like I know that if there is junk food in the house, it is much easier for me to eat junk food, where I really hate buying junk food. I'm like, man, I'm spending money on something that is actually bad for me. Like, that is, that that's clearly the point at which to intervene. Um, and it's because current Joey doesn't really want chocolate. Future Joey does, but future Joey has no choice because current Joey's making the grocery order now, and, you know, <laughs> future Joey will get it in seven days and he'll have to deal with whatever comes in the, the, the basket. Um, so if you notice, um, uh, flaws or biases or mistakes, uh, trying to, to jujitsu those to work to your advantage uh, can also be a, a really good thing because we have them all over the place, right? So uh, knowing that that future Joey will, will think A, B, or C, how do I do that? And we talked about this with Value Drift, right? Like, I am not sure that future Joey will be as ethical as current Joey. As such, I want to do things that make it kind of inconvenient for me to not be ethical. Like, you know, it'd be nice if I had a job that gave me great skills for a charitable community, but less great skills for a, a random job that would just make me lots of money. Like, that's cool
0: yeah or things like you know for example even even taking the giving what we can pledge and doing it publicly so now it's like actively socially embarrassing if i don't do this for the rest of my life because i know that okay well maybe in the future i might be thinking well you know that that extra 10 percent would be useful for my for, you know exactly for the, for the next
2: holiday or, or whatever it's like no <laughs> the, cost, yeah, the actually, cost of that is now too great to not do it another system and i think this is perfect with donations and exactly what the giving can pledges uh it's kind of like drawing this land line, line in the sand So I was looking up uh, at uh, weight gain because I was gaining a bit of weight, starting to get a little bit less healthy, Um, but I was gaining weight really slowly. But then I looked at these statistics, and it basically showed that everyone gains weight really slowly. Not everyone, but a lot of people. Um, and they kind of like get a pound here, up here, 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 and slowly over time eventually get to kind of an unhealthy weight that they're not they're not happy with. So I drew an entirely arbitrary line in the sand that like, this is the, the weight that I care about. If I am a pound over this weight, I'm going to actively work on it right then. And it was very easy to, to kind of draw that line when thinking at that point, like, oh, hey, here's... Uh, Here's a future thing that future Joey's going to work with. This isn't the exact line that I'm at right now, but it's, it's kind of this this arbitrary thing. But you have to be you have to be strict on it. You can't rationalize and once you get to the line, be like, well, I'll move the line a little bit. So I do think some of these artificial lines in the sand, especially artificial lines that constrict future you, uh, can be really good because future you is a is a rationalizing uh, genius and will try to come up with all sorts of ways to to fudge around it. <laughs> but if you're like, nope, that's the line. That's just how it is. Uh, then. Uh, you can... It's funny. I'm very consequential, but I, I think being deontological about those sort of things uh, lead to better outcomes. So it's kind of like meta, meta consequential. Amazing. All right, Jerry. Thank
0: you so much. This has been an absolute delight. I've learned so much stuff. I've <laughs> been taking copious notes yeah. on my like a uh, sort of little index card thing. Um, I'd love to have a chat with you at some other point, maybe in a in a few weeks to months when my outline is more fleshed out and just sort of running you through the structure because you, I'm sure you can suggest examples or things along the way.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be I'd be super keen on that. I'm definitely... I'm very far on the instrumental side of rationality. So things that help the goals get accomplished, that's what I'm down for. I, uh, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, yeah, tricking your brain or your body or whatever into getting the things you want done done. And I think fun is a very, very good pathway uh, to doing that. Amazing. Um, where can people find you, contact you if you're open
0: to that sort of thing? If someone has listened to the end of this three hour long podcast and is <laughs> probably <laughs> it's, it's, it's interested in the stuff that you talk about, like where can they find more of your stuff?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, no. I should actually add a couple hedge words. So like, <laughs> I'm a very extreme effective altruist uh, in terms of quantification, in terms of ethics, in terms of that thing. Uh, you can be part of the movement with way softer engagements, like donating 10% of your income. That's great. You don't have to live off the, the, the global GDP. I'm just kind of like this weird anomalous example of kind of things taking to the extreme. Uh, so yeah. So charityentrepreneurship.com is is the, the best place to, to kind of get in contact with me and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think my, my emails are kicking around that website somewhere. Um, but uh, that's what I'm, I'm always excited to talk to entrepreneurs. I think people who are productivity orientated and optimizing orientated and, and medicine orientated as well are all like very good fits to potentially found impactful organizations. So always keen to, to check to people who are considering that as a possible career path or, or that sort of thing or want to make a difference with their lives, uh, you know, on the more ethical side of things. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that's it. Yeah, don't don't take anything I say as uh, purely representative of people who do charity entrepreneurship or EAs. Uh, I'm way way off on the bell curve on both of those uh, in in various ways. Amazing.
0: And if, and if people want to want to contact you, is is there an email on charity entrepreneurship, or do you prefer Twitter, or what's the vibe?
2: Yeah, it, it's it's Joey at charityentrepreneurship.com. dot com. Easy. <laughs> that that will go to the the box <laughs> that I check.
0: Fantastic. All right, Joey, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye.
2: Perfect. Thanks.
0: or DM us at NOverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks
1: again for listening, and we'll see you next time.